Whenever I swing high, I'm risky. I survive on sex and whiskey. There's got to be a better here. Crashing down, I fall so quickly. Roller coaster rides so messy. There's got to be a better here. Oh, sweet Barry, we will cure. The years go by and you have lost all your lore. The edge is off and it's still tucked. We play, see, play, please make it stop. Hello and welcome episode 1976 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. So we got a couple big team previews for you today. In just a little while, we will be talking to Fabian Aradaya of The Athletic about the Los Angeles Dodgers, followed by Sahadab Sharma, also of The Athletic, on the Chicago Cubs. Not too much to talk about before then, probably, because there hasn't been any big breaking news or wind-breaking news like the kind that we uh, talked about last time. Uh, yeah, not so great. Eh, I had worse it, on that episode than, than that oh, one. Yeah, it was, uh, it was both an all-time high and an all-time low. Land of <laughs> contrasts. No, what I was going to say was, like, if all he had broke was wind, we wouldn't have had to talk right. about it. That would not have been newsworthy. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any Dodgers fans who are just joining us here and don't know what we're referring to. Poop. We're talking about the poop. top of our previous podcast to uh, the admission by former Dodger, former Kike Dodger. Hernandez, that he sharded during the 2020 <laughs> LDS. So if you want to reminisce about the days when Hernandez was with the Dodgers, uh, that was a successful postseason. And who knew what he overcame to win that ring? So check out episode 1975 <laughs> that but <laughs> you know it's not a word that improves upon hearing it more you know no there are mm-hmm. there are words that do there are songs that do you know sometimes you hear a song on the radio and you're like garbage song and then you hear it four more times and you you love it you know i think mm-hmm. there's a whole thing about this right the familiarity effect or whatever right mm-hmm. charted not on that list charted <laughs> not charting mm. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Kill me. There, there's uh, no really delicate way to say it. I mean, I guess there are euphemisms out there, perhaps, but it's interesting because uh, Justin Turner, another former Dodger who uh, prompted that confession by Kike Hernandez, I mean, he gave him an out, right? I mean, he oh, said, yeah. you know, when Kike Hernandez started explaining what happened, Justin Turner was like, So you're saying you misjudged a fart? And Kike Hernandez was like, no, no. what I'm saying is I pooped <laughs> my pants. that he spelled out exactly yeah. what happened there. What, so. what happened was um, there had previously been no poop in the pants. And then right. after that, at least some amount of poop in the pants. Yeah, a special surprise. So <laughs> special surprise. one thing that did happen in spring training where a lot of weird stuff happens is mm. that Kenta Maeda was not just tipping his pitches in the typical way, yeah. but tipping his pitches via pitchcom yeah. in a start against the Rays. So Maeda making his second spring start coming back from Tommy John surgery. Apparently, catcher Tony Walters had the pitchcom dialed up so high, perhaps uh, unintentionally, that the Rays hitters could hear every pitch that was every called. pitch. <laughs> As could the plate umpire. Yeah. And yet, Maeda threw... Two scoreless innings, two hits, struck out two, walked one, 
and he didn't even know that this was happening right. and it just it came to their attention apparently the umpires uh, it said ESPN said a conversation with the umpires after the second inning tipped off twins manager Rocco Baldelli so I don't know whether the umpires uh, brought that to his attention I don't know whether that would be within their purview to tell one team that hey your pitch comp device is tipping all your pitches or not or whether something they said tipped Baldelli off so to speak but <laughs> point is the Rays knew everything that was coming and they still could not muster much offense against Maida and it's spring training and it's two innings and uh, we don't need to make too much of that but it just it brings me to mind about all of the studies about sign stealing and the banging yeah. scheme seemingly not paying as many dividends as you would think and everyone wonders why and part of it was just that you didn't have a hundred percent reliability they weren't always banging correctly but also it's just very hard to hit pitches thrown by major league pitchers even if you know what's coming yeah it's tough and and also knowing what's coming sort of disrupts your routine yeah. in a sense because you don't normally know what's coming so i don't think we can uh read too much into two spring training innings but it's another tiny little unreliable data point to suggest that merely knowing what's coming is uh not sufficient to actually produce against those pitches which doesn't mean that we're saying they'll be cheaters you know we're not saying that we're Mm -hmm. we're in fact saying why if the moral case against it isn't compelling to you perhaps the practical case of it not helping that much will make the risk reward uh, tip away from it you know (laughs) (laughs) we're finding so many ways to use that word here ben i you were like there's no big news Uh oh. i don't know that it's big news Uh okay i want to caveat this by saying could be fine doesn't mean it, it is is anything. It's spring. You know, they're cautious. But I do mm-hmm. want to tell you, you know, who left uh, the second inning of Friday's game with right knee discomfort? Do you know who, who it is? It's, I don't. It's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. So Uh-oh. I'm just saying it seems like it's not a big deal. That's what this says, right? Mm-hmm. I'm reading it now on air, and now I'm feeling a little bad for making you worry. But <laughs> they, they did remove him. They were like, don't take any chances, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm worried just because of the many injuries, uh, including knee injuries, one of which we're going to talk about on the Dodgers segment, and we lamented the wave of injuries on our last episode. It actually, it made me wonder, like, is there a better way where we could do spring training, even maybe without playing so many games or something? Like, I think you have to have uh, drills and guys have to get up to game speed and everything, even if they're in pretty good shape and pitchers have to get ramped up. But what if there were a way to not play so many games and just uh, throw your bullpens and take your batting practice and maybe intense batting practice and all sorts of practice, but fewer actual games just to minimize injury. But then I was thinking of all the reasons why that's probably not a good idea. For one thing, it's a spectator experience and uh, people in Florida and Arizona like to go watch spring training games and teams like to sell tickets to them. And it's hard to replicate the in-game experience just in terms of intensity, even if it's spring training and it's not very intense. It's still a little bit different from a scrimmage or being on a backfield or in a batting cage somewhere. And also this spring, with all the new rules changes and everything, you kind of have to see how that plays out in a game setting to get acclimated to it. But I do wonder like, if we ever do get to a point where spring training is shortened somewhat and maybe pitchers just get built up in some other way, right, without actually subjecting players to all these scenarios where they're maybe more likely to get injured because it's just such a bummer when that happens before the season even starts. 
Yeah, it's it's such a funny balance we have to strike. It's like you want it's like the Goldilocks approach to to baseball. You want you want it to be just right so that mm-hmm. you're preventing a uh, future injury by being sufficiently built up, but not so much that you are engaging in injury in the early going, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, if that <laughs> rationale, hey, maybe we don't need so many games. Uh, maybe there are other ways to do drills and practices. That's sort of a rationale that has been brought up as a reason to remove minor league right. teams and downsize the minors. And I don't think that's a great thing for the sport right. <laughs> as a whole. So even if it's a case of uh, this is more efficient or there are ways that we could replicate this without playing games. It's also good to play games, even though spring training games uh, can be a bit dull after the initial thrill of it wears off. Maybe more interesting this year than usual, what with all the rules changes. But still, if you're in the area, you want to go see those games. It's good to have baseball games yeah. available <laughs> yeah. in order to ensure the health of the sport of baseball. It is uh, good to play baseball games and have baseball teams playing them. Yeah. And the, you know, the local economy here in right. uh, Arizona and benefits for it so mm-hmm. you know not not in like a build more stadiums for owners way just like chill <laughs> right. but, you know that's yes i'll take bad traffic in the valley if like servers here can get tips it's fine Yes, and if uh, players can make at least minimum wage, that'd be nice too. Yeah, so, wouldn't it? <laughs> I wanted to say, just prompted by that Kenta Maeda pitch-tipping, pitch-com yeah. incident, that brings to mind something else that's happening to pitch-com this spring, which is that pitchers, in some cases, are calling their own pitches, which is yeah. a, a possibility we discussed back on episode 1725. That was a lot of episodes ago, but that was before this specific implementation of the Pitchcom device was permitted. And now it's being tested this spring with an eye toward potentially approving it for regular season play. And it's really interesting, I, I think. And we've seen a lot of pitchers doing it. Corbin Burns and Shohei Otani and Alex Cobb and Joe Musgrove before he broke his toe and Luis Severino and Max Scherzer, who has previously said he doesn't think Pitchcom should be legal, although he acknowledges that it helps. And Severino called calling his own pitches the greatest thing of all time. Mm. <laughs> so it seems to be getting rave reviews from the pitchers who have tried it. And it seems like we will start to see this. And I have mixed feelings, I think, about this happening on a widespread basis. Of, of course, there's always been some calling of pitches by pitchers and stories about Greg Maddox doing it and Zach Greinke right. doing it. It's, it's not even a story. It's not like apocryphal. You can see Zach Greinke doing it in footage in past games. But obviously, it was tough to do that, really, right. when the hitters could uh, see exactly what you were doing and hear what you were saying. And Pitchcom not supposed to work like that unless Tony Walters has the volume too high. So. <laughs> What do you think the implications of this will be? Or would you want to do it if you were a pitcher? What are the drawbacks and possible advantages here? I mean, I suppose that if it is properly communicated, you continue to avoid getting crossed up, right? Like that would be, Mm -hmm. you want to, it's just always good for the catcher and the pitcher to be on the same page. Because if they're not, then they get crossed up. And then Mm -hmm. all kinds of, all kinds of nonsense can happen. So there's that piece of it. If there is any change in how you are feeling as a pitcher, 
like the midst of a start and you don't want to use a mound as it, you can address that. Like if you get up there and you're you're like, oh, my my feel for my slider isn't what I thought it was, then you know mm-hmm. that and you're calling your own pitches. But like catchers notice things like right. famously, they're like noticers, you know? Yeah. And you can just tell your catcher like, hey, I got up here, doesn't feel right. Can Don't mm-hmm. want to throw that one as much. I feel like it should be a collaborative project, right? I think that yeah. I see there being benefit in a pitcher being able to impart to his catcher like, hey, here's how I'm feeling stuff up here. And then the catcher being able to be like, here's how I see it playing. And I feel mm-hmm. like it, it, two minds better than one in that scenario. It doesn't have to be a binary, right? It's a collaborative right, sure. process. And and I, I do wonder which part of the battery would have a better evaluation yeah. of the pitcher's stuff that day, right? right? Because, I mean, the pitcher's the one throwing the pitches right. and, and knows how that feels coming right. out of the hand. But the catcher is uh, maybe a little less uh, biased about sure. it, right? Or less motivated reasoning going on there and uh, less irrational exuberance, right? So you're right. Maybe having both seems like better than having either one. And right. they still have that. It's right. not, again, it's not like all of the pitches have to be called by the catcher or by the pitcher. It can still be collaborative and the pitcher can just call some pitches. That's happened right. in the spring. It's just some pitchers will have used it sparingly during certain outings so it doesn't have to be a hundred percent either way and i mean it feels like sort of an inversion of what the natural order of things has been but i'm pro pitchcom in general i I think pitchcom has worked great and i i see some of the advantages which first of all there's the pitch clock right Right. so that's added time pressure and yes if you're worried about having to shake off calls and let's say you're you're down to your last few seconds and you don't have the time to spare and, and risk a shake off or have to commit to throwing a pitch you don't really want to throw, then the pitcher can do it, right? right? And I don't know exactly how the pitcher and the catcher will navigate that, like figuring out, I'm going to call this one, you know, like will the, right. the pitcher overrule the catcher or the catcher will just see that the pitcher is doing it, right? But there's just less time to spare in general. So if you're down to the wire and the clock is ticking, then the pitcher can just set it and it doesn't right. have to be a back and forth. So I think it makes more sense with the pitch clock than it would without. I do think catchers can pick up on some things pitchers can't, not right. just about the stuff, but maybe they're paying closer attention to the hitters. They're right. seeing how a hitter reacted to something. They're seeing how they're standing in the box, how they're set up, right? That sort of thing that m- might be harder to pick up from the mound. And I guess it depends also who's been studying the hitters and prepping for this start. Now, on the one hand, like catchers have it hard now because they have to handle so many different pitchers on a staff at any given time or over the course of the season or in a single game, right? So if they have to not only know each pitcher's stuff and then game plan for those pitchers, like that's a large cognitive load, I suppose, on those catchers. And so if the pitchers were doing the bulk of that, maybe that would be a load off the catcher's mind. I don't want to further erode catcher responsibilities because we love catchers, you know? We're already we we've already taken so much from them, Ben. Yeah. We're about to take so much more. Potentially, right? I I guess you could say 
preventing the running game might take on added importance for catchers and and back picks being a part of the strategy now. But if we have robo-umps or even a challenge system, you know, that's been the concern. If we go to full robo-umps, then it won't really matter how you receive pitches anymore. And that would be a big difference. And then if you took game calling away too i mean you're taking away the the two biggest parts of the job right the parts that make that position so special and so difficult and challenging so you're changing who can be a catcher and what kind of offense you expect out of catcher and just sort of the mystique and mythology of the position and and the traditions of catching which are important to us that's something we very much enjoy about the sport Yeah. yeah so i don't know i could see where If the pitcher calls the pitch himself, he'll have even more conviction that that that's what he wants to do, right? And that's good. It's good to have conviction and to feel like you're throwing the pitch that you want to throw. Although I think if you're leaning one way and then the catcher calls that same pitch, then you get like a bonus. It's like a double, oh, we're both on the same pitch Double conviction. Yeah, like this is definitely the right pitch call here. So just getting that kind of confirmation from a second source could be good too. And if I were a pitcher, I could see where... I might like just deferring, right? Like if I had confidence in my catcher and my catcher is good at working with me and studies the scouting reports, it might be kind of nice, especially with the pitch clock counting down, just to concentrate on delivering the pitch, right? right? And and not having to worry about what I'm going to throw, just place my faith in the catcher's hands. I could see how that would be advantageous too. So it could go a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that sometimes it's nice to just be told what to do and not have to manage people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) She doesn't say that from any personal experience. You know, sometimes it's nice to be like, yeah, that sounds good. Cool. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. I mean, like uh, limits to that as uh, an approach to one's life, obviously. But sometimes Mm -hmm. it's nice to be like, cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it'll probably end up being a case-by-case case and yeah. pitch-by-pitch basis sort of thing because if you're a, a veteran pitcher with a rookie catcher or right. a, a catcher who's never worked with you before or if it's the opposite, if you're the rookie pitcher and you have some veteran uh, pitcher whisperer back there behind the right. plate, then it'll probably go that way or it'll just be personal preference. Like, I like calling my own pitches. I don't like calling my own pitches. You know, if you gave Zach Greinke pitch com and he could call his own pitches then right. he might have done that every time right, right? but but Zach Greinke is a, a singular person and yes. I don't know that everyone else would want to do that so I will be very curious like I assume that we won't get any data on this like a, right. a breakdown it would be kind of cool if we knew that like what's the the rate of own calls for each pitcher or yeah. even just league-wide, even if it were like anonymized or per team or something, I guess it would be sort of insulting to individual catchers if you knew that, right? Like if you saw that uh, this catcher on the staff, the pitchers are deferring to that catcher constantly, but when it's the backup or something, it's like, like eh, no, maybe I'll handle this. Yeah, <laughs> I got it. I got it. Don't worry. I yeah. take a load off, you know. Back <laughs> so maybe there. they wouldn't want that out there, but but I will be very curious to see like what the percentage is of pitcher calls this season and if that changes as yeah. they gain confidence or whether we find out whether there's uh, any difference in how pitches are called league-wide or whether we can detect any difference in the effectiveness. I'm pretty fascinated by how this plays out because this is uh, like some of the other rules changes this year. This hasn't gotten much attention, but this is sort of a fundamental role reversal here. Well, and I wonder, gosh, can you imagine like if it got used kind of against you in 
in arbitration or on the free agent market. Ugh, like, yeah. yeah, I'd just like to point out that like most of your starters didn't want to throw to you, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, or, your job is easy. You yeah, don't have the, to call pitches. Yeah. They didn't they didn't want your feedback on what to throw and they did fine. So mm-hmm. I'm back there. So there's that piece of it. And I would imagine that there are probably starters or individual catchers, as you said, who like it makes really good sense one way or the other. Like if you have a lot of conviction about your desire to do this, maybe that's indicative of you having a crummy catcher. Maybe you just have some particularly strong skill in terms of your own game calling, right? And so Mm -hmm. you're just going to maximize that. Or maybe you'd be like, I'm going to call my own pitches. And then you go out there and you get shelled and you're like, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. And that would be funny. And can you somehow hide a foreign substance under the Pitchcom wrist device? (laughs) Can you just sneak some sticky stuff under there somehow? Suddenly everyone will be theoretically calling their own pitches or they'll just be wanting to call their own pitches whether they want to or not so they can hide some substance in there. I don't know. It doesn't look like you could do that, but I will never Mm -hmm. underestimate pitcher's ability to find somewhere to stick sticky stuff. You just figure that everything is going to get tried at least one time. Mm -hmm. You know? At least one time, somebody's going to try it and be like, oh, fine, I guess that didn't work. Yeah. And the last thing I want to talk about here, just as a segue into our Dodgers preview. So, One reason the Dodgers had the best offense in baseball last year, I guess the main reason is that they had, you know, Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman and Trey Turner and lots of other great hitters. But also (laughs) they had the best plate discipline Mm. in the majors, I would say. They had the lowest chase rate, the lowest rate of swings at outside pitches, pitches that were not likely to be strikes. And then they also had the best plate discipline, if you look at it as swing rate in the strike zone minus swing rate outside the strike zone or divided by whatever it is. The Dodgers probably had the best plate discipline in baseball last year. And this is really interesting to me because more and more it seems like one way to maximize your productivity in the box and to have good plate discipline is just to swing less. Yeah. That's something that a lot of people have been writing about and yeah. pointing out analytically. Devin Fink at Fangraphs in the past or you know, Saris at The Athletic and others have made this point that it seems like hitters collectively should be swinging a lot less it's a than lot less. they do. Yeah, like yeah. really a lot. Like last year, according to Baseball Savant, hitters collectively produced a run value of negative 7,504 runs when mm. they swung which was actually the best they'd done in a full season since 2016. And it sounds counterintuitive. How can it be bad on the whole to swing? Obviously, some swings are bad and some are good. But on the whole, it doesn't pan out analytically. And I guess it kind of makes sense if you think about it because most of the time when you swing – Either you miss or you foul it off or you make an out, right? Right. There are just a lot of negative outcomes that can happen there. Whereas if you take a pitch, uh, it can work out quite well for you. It's, uh, I guess the odds are more in your favor and then you get yourself in a better count and then you get better pitches to hit so that when you do swing, you're in a more favorable position to do that. So I was just thinking about that this week because there's a substack called Down on the Farm that, as the name suggests, focuses on minor leaguers and analysis of the minors. And they had an interesting post this week by Drew Hagen. I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, H-A-U-G-E-N, where he introduced this new metric called swing decision run value Mm. or swing RV. And this is just trying to look at 
who swings in an optimal way just regardless uh, of the actual results so it's kind of uh, taking it a step further back from who makes the best contact or whatever looking at it in a different way just who's making the best swing and not swing decisions and then debiting or crediting the hitter based on that so it's basically like expected run value of a swing minus expected run value of a take this can shed some light on hitters who might be underrated or overrated in some ways uh, whether it's because of uh, umpire decisions or other factors that might influence you or just you know there are some guys who they're underrated if you look at their walk rate let's say because they don't walk that much because they're swinging at a lot of good pitches uh, that they're doing damage on or it could be the other way around right where someone is uh, overrated by walk right. rate let's say because they should actually be swinging at some pitches they that do, yeah. they're taking although it seems like the latter would be rarer because again this new metric confirms that it seems like hitters are swinging too often so i'm just quoting here and i'll link to this but using the swing rv data just 33% of pitches had a higher context-neutral expected run value on a swing compared to a take, while in reality, the league swing rate was far higher at 48%. Mm. So that's saying basically that, in theory, hitters should be swinging at about a third of pitches, and instead they're swinging at almost half of them. And again, this is context neutral. Obviously, there are certain situations in games where you do really want to swing, yeah. right? But but just on the whole, it seems like they're swinging too much. And it goes on to say, even in-zone pitches should not all be swung at because a called strike is not as hurtful as a weakly hit batted ball. Right. Only 64% of in-zone pitches, so pitches that in theory would be called strikes, have a higher expected run value on a swing than on a take mm. again because uh, maybe it's a strike like on the black on the right. corner right and it's hard to do damage with that and so you should just let it go so it's really interesting and i don't know what to do with this information or what i would want to do if i were with a team right. because hitters want to hit right. <laughs> right like they want to swing <laughs> and yeah. so i guess that is why if in fact they are hurting themselves by swinging as often as they do, that they do that because uh, they're wired to want to swing, right? Uh, it's like Joey Votto, who before he got hurt recently, he had that great year where he sort of switched up what kind of hitter he was and suddenly right. he was swinging a whole lot more and hitting a lot of dingers. And he said, like, I'm at the end of my career. I just kind of want to go for it. Like, I want to let it rip. He said, I want to hit like a caveman and enjoy myself. <laughs> so I guess that's denigrating the intelligence of uh, other other hitters who swing more often but again according to the metrics uh, there's some basis for that so i don't know what i would do because yeah. there's also danger in being too passive like right. if you just instruct all your hitters hey don't swing right. well that's not good either because you do have to swing sometimes you and do also have to swing sometimes <laughs> if you have a demonstrated tendency of never swinging yeah well then pitchers are just gonna pour it in there and you're yep. gonna have a lot of called strikes and suddenly it's kind of a game theory thing where it won't be as advantageous to take pitches anymore because a lot of them will be called strikes on you so it is really interesting where sometimes there are these just league-wide you know like studies showing that there should be a lot more sliders thrown than there were because sliders are really effective on the whole. You could put defensive positioning in this category too because it seems like defenders should have been deeper than they used to be and they should have been standing where batters were more likely 
to hit the ball instead of in a standard defensive alignment. It's amazing how much players know and do through instinct and instruction and experience and practice, but it's also sometimes surprising what they collectively seem not to know. Right. This seems like it could be another thing that I'm sure a lot of teams are aware of and are trying to relate this information to their hitters and impart some of this wisdom without restricting their natural tendency to actually do damage on pitches that they can do damage on. It's it's kind of a conundrum. It just goes to show that no matter what the rules are, no matter what they are, there's going to be stuff on the margins that teams are thinking about when it comes to what guys should be doing at the plate. And some of those mm-hmm. are going to be like, do less of the thing everyone <laughs> likes to see you do. And I'm not exactly. saying I'm not saying that there are teams out there that are going to guys and being like, don't swing, don't swing, don't <laughs> mm-hmm. swing. If you swing, you're going to have to pay $5. You're going to yeah. not get snacks. You're going to whatever. <laughs> like, I don't think that that's really happening. I'm sure there are. You know, we know that there are teams that are trying to help their guys make more optimal swing decisions, but mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's actually saying, just don't see how it goes. Like, unless yeah. a guy's hurt, and then they tend to tell us, like, he's not going to swing because he's hurt. And then <laughs> for some <laughs> right. reason, Miguel Vargas, like, still, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so, but there's always going to be stuff where teams are like, well, what's the... What's the most extreme endpoint we can take this to before it gets counterproductive or silly? And sometimes they're going to, you know, like I said, they're going to try everything at least Mm -hmm. once. Yeah, right. And you brought up Miguel Vargas for a second there. He's not swinging because he's got a pinky finger issue. It's public knowledge that he's not swinging. And yet he's walked four times in his first eight spring plate appearances, which again, just goes to show people say when you put the ball in play, good things happen. Well, sometimes when you don't swing, good things happen. And when you put the ball in play, bad things happen. And some of this has to do with other factors like how the ball is behaving and uh, whether you can shift or not. And These things will change the calculus and hitters of late have uh, really just been letting it rip on two strikes and going for the homer because the ball was lively and they could, but it seems like that may have actually been counterproductive on the whole. So we'll see how this changes, but it's just really interesting. And I I don't think it would be great if every team just said, okay, we're suddenly going to swing a lot less because I I do think that would probably be more boring, right? It would be so boring. On the whole, more interesting to see a swing than not a swing. We we, we are, I was about to say, we're pro-swinging on this podcast. (laughs) Out of context, that could mean... You yeah. know, any number of things. Funny coming on the the heels of co-exclusive, though. Exactly. Mm. Yes. Co-exclusive relationships. Yes. But I do wonder, because uh, back in 2015, when Sam Miller and I were running the Sonoma Stompers, one of our schemes, one of our thoughts that we could do this was we thought that once hitters got ahead in the count, I don't know if we decided how ahead, but at some point when they were ahead in the count, we thought we might just instruct them not to swing because at that low level of indie ball, we figured pitchers aren't throwing that many strikes anyway. Right, right. right. So if they're falling behind, then at that point, it really might be better not to swing. Not to swing, yeah. And I think we were onto something given this, but we were wary of trying to implement that because, again, how would the players have reacted if we said, you're not allowed to swing when you get up too early or something? Because that's when hitters are like, all right, time to let it rip. It's a hitter's count. Here we go. This is where I'm going to make my money. And then you're telling them, don't swing. (laughs) That's just not going to go over that well but it's interesting that you know 20 years after Moneyball and all the emphasis on walk rates and plate discipline and taking pitches 
we're still in this spot where it looks like it's just uh, kind of miscalibrated in yeah. a way. And it just it may be the natural tendency of hitters and, and it may be best for the sport and fan friendly that they do keep swinging too much. But really, Tom Tango had a thread about this that I'll link to. And he noted that there are just very few players who have a positive contribution with their swings. Like unless you're a Hall of Famer, like unless you're a really, really great hitter, almost every batter has a negative value on their swings and positive value on their takes. And so you have to find the balance. And right. it seems like they perhaps have not found the optimal balance, but that is for the best because often it seems like when baseball gets optimized, it, it gets uh, worse perhaps in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that, I mean, like I don't want to overstate the case, but I can imagine it being almost psychologically damaging to a hitter to say, hey, like, you're in a count where it's like the only scenario where you where it might go well because it's so hard what you're doing. Yeah. And even then, just stand there. Like yeah. I, you would feel not worthless, but worth less, you know? <laughs> yes. And I don't Except think it you might be worth more. Right. On field value, but, but yes. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think that we and not as an industry, I think baseball has made strides in being able to communicate at times counterintuitive concepts to players to help them really optimize their game and and score more runs or prevent more runs and win more games and do the thing. But I do think that there is like a, a limit to to sort of counterintuitive messages that you could get a player to buy. And I just don't think you're going to get a guy to believe you that you're just not, you know, I think that they're the players understand that walks have values and that getting on base is valuable and that it doesn't, not that it doesn't matter how you do that, but that there are a lot of ways to contribute value in that way. And that if you're mm -hmm. drawing walks, like, cool, that's, that is worthwhile to your club and is going to help them win. And like, <laughs> there's a limit to that right. you know there just is and i don't know that it's really worth a lot on balance to to try to untangle that bit of in intuitiveness in the mind of a hitter and yeah right and they're just wired to hitters want to hit they want to right? hit <laughs> and they've always been really good at that yeah that's why they're theirs because yeah. they've been historically you right. know and when you're a kid and you're feasting on other kids or whatever who aren't as yeah. good as you and uh, you know if you're in t-ball like uh, right. you can't practice taking pitches in t-ball no. <laughs> right? you, really so can't. you uh, swing away and yeah, yeah I, I don't know that you could go against that natural programming like Jed Lowry is quoted in Eno's piece and he says uh, okay they aren't wrong about this I mean he seems to accept the premise but he sure. says it's terrible entertainment not swinging yeah. is more effective than swinging that's pure insanity for the game right. and also just wouldn't be fun for hitters. Now, if uh, they were paid much more for not swinging, then maybe they would understand that incentives are aligned that way. Like there have been studies, Russell Carlton has shown that not that long after Moneyball, players started to be paid based more on their on-base percentage right. than their batting average, right? right? So if it turns out that uh, teams are paying more for hitters who swing less, well, I guess uh, hitters will start to get that message. But Again, I guess uh, they're hoping that having the ball be in play will be more advantageous and then it will be more rewarding to swing, less costly maybe not to swing and hitters will uh, stop swinging for the fences so much and maybe the calculus will kind of change. But sure. 
Probably not completely. No. And I don't think that they'll ever swing as, as little as they should, quote unquote, right. swing. And that's probably for the best. That's because they care about us, Ben. Mm-hmm. You know? It's it's really kind of selfless if you think yeah. about it, right? Because exactly. they are sacrificing value to provide to us <laughs> entertainment value. And that's yeah, really like a, a sacrifice bunt, basically. It's yeah. so it's just, you know. <laughs> it's service. They're mm-hmm. engaged in service and also yeah. hitting. Right. And, and there's still, I think, even all these years after Moneyball, uh, people didn't used to think walking was really a skill. It was just like the pitcher making a mistake, right? right. And now everyone knows of hitters can draw walks. It's not, you're not just a passive participant, you're an active participant. But <laughs> we do know that. But I think that that lesson isn't super sticky moment to moment. I, think I agree. That, yeah. I think that we we have talked about this. Like you don't, you know, you don't hear about on-base streaks the same way you hear about hitting streaks. And I mm-hmm. think that's because even though we know it's valuable, even though we know there is skill involved, even though we have seen guys' careers, hitters' careers undone by an inability to like have a good approach at the plate and be patient and take pitches they should take. Even though we know all of those things intellectually, I still think that a lot of fans look at walks as charity. I think Mm -hmm. that it is viewed as charity and not work. And so that's why we don't valorize it the same way. And we should stop doing that. We should be the change. (laughs) Like, you know, any outcome on the field is some combination of the pitcher and the hitter and sometimes the fielders, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. always, it's never just the one guy. And I think we know that too. Except it's just not it's yeah. not a sticky lesson moment to moment for a lot of folks. And mm-hmm. we should try to make it right. more sticky. I'm glad we're having the sticky conversation now <laughs> instead of on the last episode, because that yes, would have been me too. a real problem. Yeah. And I guess this is a situation there are always these sort of situations where teams will do what is advantageous for teams and then sometimes sure. that turns out not to be great for the sport and that's right. when you need the league to step in and say right. actually we need you to speed up or we need to change the ball or we need to do whatever it is or to you have bring things to swing. <laughs> yeah, right. But maybe in this case there is a sort of a natural defense. If uh, teams just wanted to recruit hitters who right. don't swing, I guess they can do that. But there are only so many of those guys, right? right. Because as we just said, hitters want to swing. They want to swing. <laughs> and so and they will resist being told not to swing. Yeah. They know within reason, obviously, uh, you want to swing at hittable pitches. Sure. But if it's, uh, hey, you should be swinging at a third of pitches, then there might be some pushback because yeah. it's a game and you're supposed to have fun. <laughs> so. Yeah. And they're they're... They're hitters, you know? It's in mm-hmm. their it's in their nature. It's Indeed. in it's in it's in there, you know? Yes. All right. Let's do some previews, shall we? So we've got the Dodgers up first, projected for for them a soft eighty seven point six wins with a sixty five percent playoff odds and twenty five percent division odds. Shocking. My goodness. Shocking. When, when was the last time that that was the case? I don't know. We could probably look. I don't know if the Fangrass playoff odds go back far enough for us to tell when the last time that I happened was. I know that this is the first time since we've had odds. Um, yeah. Okay. That mm-hmm. which I think they the playoff odds go back to twenty twelve. That this is the first time they've been projected for fewer than ninety wins. Mm-hmm. And when Ben Clemens wrote that, they still had a fully operational Gavin Lux. So right. it's only mm-hmm. gotten worse. Yeah, I mean, they're 
seventh now in projected win totals, which is uh, better than most of the teams. Obviously, you can do the arithmetic there, but but seventh, that is uh, how far they have fallen. Yeah, only projected for 87 (laughs) wins by our playoff odds. And still probably making the playoffs and having a solid chance to make the division. So that's uh, obviously a reflection of how successful the Dodgers have been, that this is quite a come down for them. but. Hey, Padres, uh, you got a chance. The lane is open. Yeah. Yeah, do it, guys. (laughs) So we'll talk to Fabian Ardaya about the Dodgers, and then we will be back with Sahadav Sharma about the Cubs. Cubs, 76.3 projected wins with a 9 and 4% playoff and division odds, respectively. So uh, they've fallen far relative to some years ago, too, but not so much to last year. I suppose that is not as much of a surprise. So. We will take a quick break, and we will begin after that with the Dodgers. All right, we're back and we're ready to discuss the still formidable but somewhat diminished Dodgers with someone who's not diminished at all, still as strong as ever, Fabian Ardaya, who covers the Dodgers for The Athletic. Welcome, Fabian. Hello. So it's a good thing that you're still on the beat to provide some consistency for Dodgers fans because there was a whole lot of turnover this offseason, just a ton of change on the roster, a lot of players leaving via free agency. Let's just see if I can list all of the prominent players who departed that way. Trey Turner, Tyler Anderson, Andrew Heaney, Cody Bellinger, Justin Turner, Chris Martin, Craig Kimbrell, David Price. Am I missing anyone? Maybe. That's just a ton of net talent subtracted one way or another. So... Was that always the plan? Why was that the plan? And obviously the plan did not involve Gavin Lux missing the entire 2023 season, which we will get to shortly, I'm sure. But when you are a team that won 111 games with the Pythagorean record of a 116 win team, obviously you can afford to shed some amount of talent and still be a contender, which the Dodgers are. But take us through this exodus (laughs) this offseason. Yes, those very unlucky 116 win Pythag Dodgers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of how it was a little bit of the plan. I think it obviously on paper, it looks very drastic, uh, especially when you look at it. I think before Edwin Rios signed with the Cubs, I think all the, all those guys you mentioned who got a big league deal elsewhere got one for at least like a 10 million guarantee, which is, was pretty staggering. But yeah, I mean, they, I think for the most part, most of the people that left were people that they probably didn't plan on being in their uh, future plans. I think Trey Turner, they had some, early discussions with but I think it was very clear early on they weren't going to re-sign him uh Justin Turner they tried to bring back uh, or at least like they had many discussions with him sort of throughout but I think uh especially once JD Martinez sort of came off the board I think it came pretty clear that he wasn't going to come back Tyler Anderson I think uh, I think everyone was kind of a little surprised by how quickly he signed but he was someone who they'd given a qualifying offer to but I don't think they were going to be willing to go three years uh the same way the Angels were especially not that quickly that market sort of went through pretty quickly but uh, yeah I think they kind of looked at uh the underlying talent the roster still that was still there I think they sort of looked at their farm system where they actually felt like the first time in a couple of years they had quite a few guys in AAA that were going to be able to contribute at the big league level 
and they sort of looked at it as like, all right, for financial reasons, for roster reasons, it made sense to try to duck under the CBT, reset things, and use this sort of young wave of talent to sort of keep them pushing forward. Because I know Andrew Freeman's sort of been saying for a couple of years now uh, that their level of spending was not, quote unquote, sustainable for them. And a lot of that, as Ben mentioned, sort of hinged on Gavin Lux being able to play shortstop. We can talk about some of the other unsettled positions on this roster, but the hope was that he was going to return to his natural position and break out and be awesome. And then he unfortunately suffered a season-ending injury. So where does this leave them in terms of their infield alignment? They obviously traded for Miguel Rojas and then extended him. So they have him as an option. Miguel Vargas is floating around. What do you imagine the configuration is going to be for them on the infield? And then maybe we can use that to spring to the outfield and how they might move some of the pieces that they have signed around out there. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of tough timing, for, especially for Lux, just considering yeah. everything he's been through in his career. and. He kind of checked off every piece of spring training bingo uh, this year. Like he put on weight, put on muscle. He was on a drive line, did everything. He was sort of in a great mental headspace to take on his natural position, as they kept saying. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're, that uh, Rojas acquisition kind of looks really good in retrospect, just in terms of depth. I don't think they the guy they, they traded him for, Jacob Maya, who was on the 40-man as a shortstop, I don't think they really felt he was ready to contribute this year. Uh, so having someone in Rojas who obviously defensively can handle things is probably the way they're most likely to look at the shortstop position. I think I wouldn't have been surprised, even if Lux had been healthy, if they had sort of at the deadline been willing to upgrade the position, whether it be someone like Willie Adamas or Ahmed Rosario. If one of those teams are sort of out of it and more willing to move a guy, that they be the Dodgers would be willing to swoop in. But as is, I think you're going to kind of look at Rojas a lot short. I think they were already looking a lot at... Miguel Vargas sort of being close to the everyday second baseman, at least to start the season, just because they feel really confident in the bat, and that's the best place that they could put him. Uh, and then you look at Max Muncy at third base, Freddie Freeman, of course, at first. So right now, it's probably going to be Miguel Rojas, mostly at short. Probably a lot more short for Chris Taylor than we originally expected, although they still have to monitor his elbow because he had surgery last year before last year and sort of impacted his ability to make the types of throws and angles from the infield. Uh, so they sort of have to monitor that still and maybe a little bit more Mookie Betts at second base whenever uh, Miguel Vargas needs a day off. But still, I still don't think that's going to be necessarily a prominent thing for him. And then shifting to the outfield, obviously on on the rare occasions when Betts isn't playing second, he'll be the fixture in right. And then there's sort of an interesting assortment of guys who might you know, shuffle in and out. So they signed David Peralta. They have Trace Thompson. You mentioned Taylor. What do you imagine sort of come opening day and then going forward they might do as they move guys around? Oh, and I didn't even mention Jason Hayward, who is also on this team as a, a non-roster invitee. Yeah, there's also James Altman, who like, oh, right. hit, like, who hit like Barry Bonds in like 16 plate appearances last year. Um, but uh, he... I think they're still trying to figure it out. I think that's what, what the one part that I think they're willing to like let roll, let the season start and roll things out and figure out if anyone can sort of run away with a job. I think Chris Taylor was going to be the guy who is going to get guaranteed probably the most playing time of that bunch because uh, he played left, he could play center. He probably would have been their most stable option there, if he could, especially if he could rebound offensively from where he was last year. But 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. I think David Peralta could definitely be sort of a platoon option, especially against right-handed pitching. Trace Thompson, they're kind of hoping can hit left-handed pitching. When they acquired him last year, obviously he was really good, but he was only really good against right-handed pitching, which he had never been good against right-handed pitching before, which was kind of confounding to everyone. So they're kind of hoping he can figure out against lefties. And if so, he's someone who probably can be close to an everyday guy out there. And then, like you guys mentioned, Jason Hayward. I think he, he's, I know he's an NRI, but he's probably a pretty solid bet to make the team at this point, uh, just considering his connections to Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, some of the sort of rave reviews he's gotten from the hitting coaches and from the staff so far this spring. He's changed his swing around a little bit, and they know defensively he can handle it, and they feel like he can handle center field. So I think it's going to be a chance like sort of throw it out and see if anyone can kind of run away with the left field and center field jobs. Yeah, I was going to ask about Hayward and some of the changes that he might be looking to make to his swing. What what has their approach been to try to get him sort of back to prior good versions of himself? I think it definitely looks a lot quieter than it has in years past. I think they want to sort of tamp down what he's done and sort of put him in athletic positions, as they like to say, which has looked a lot like sort of moving his hands back a little bit. They're not moving as much. His uh, stance is a little bit more closed. Uh, he sort of has sort of decreased his stride length as he strides the baseball just all stuff that is sort of aimed around less moving parts getting him quicker to the baseball and like allowing his sort of strength and tools to sort of play on the ball and they're sort of banking on the fact that he can sort of allow the rest to sort of work itself out yeah we're about to talk about the cubs in our next segment and if jason hayward went from getting released by the cubs to then bouncing back with the dodgers that would just be at this stage of his career the ultimate dodgers devil magic so i mean i <laughs> i hope it happens because uh, who doesn't like jason hayward and, and wants him to do well but that would really be i mean of all the hitters that they have rehabilitated that would be up there on the list i think if they could get the old jason hayward back in the actually old Jason Hayward. But then what happens if the Cubs can rehabilitate Cody Bellinger? Mm, yeah, right. Then is it just a Tip freaky Friday? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, if Trace Thompson, you know, was uh, quite a find for the Dodgers last year and look, he hit the ball well, like the the peripherals, the expected stats were similar to the actual stats, although he did have a very high BABIP and a high strikeout rate and it did kind of come out of nowhere. I mean, if he does regress significantly or can't handle a full-time job, is there some scenario now where Taylor is just so needed in the infield that Mookie plays some center or a lot of center this season? I don't see him playing center. I think if he's going to be in right field, it'll either be in right field or at second base. I think mm -hmm. they don't want to over-extenuate him. I think part of why they like him long-term at second base and why he kind of wants to be at second base long-term is it's just the amount of running that will take a sort of toll on his body, he feels. And I feel like there's going to be more running in center than there will be in right field. I think they feel confident, like at least defensively, that Thompson or Hayward can sort of handle center field. And eventually James Outman, uh, when he does sort of come up to the big leagues, it's just a matter of figuring out if anyone's bat can stick out there. But I, I don't see Mookie being that option. Yeah, I just wonder because, you know, obviously he has the skills like he's that great in a corner and really ended up in a corner kind of just because of circumstance and when he came up and who was playing center at the time. So you always wonder, just put Mookie everywhere would be good <laughs> if you could just make the whole team out of Mookie. That would be a great solution to the depth issues. But it's good, I guess, that we are talking to you now as opposed to a week ago because a lot of these answers would have been really different prior to the Lux 
injury. Like, it's hard to think of a non-superstar. I mean, he had great potential, obviously, but someone who hasn't demonstrated that he could necessarily play at that level for sure for their absence to just cause such a kind of cascade. I mean, he was really the linchpin in a sense after Turner's departure. I know there were questions about how Lux would handle short, but now those questions, you would love to have that be the question because you already had questions about Vargas at second and a lot less depth than the Dodgers have typically had. And just to have him go down like that, just really like pretty devastating. I mean, as you said, you know, for him personally, but also for the Dodgers, because just a lot of their offseason passivity, I suppose, was predicated on the supposition that they could count on Lux this year to take a step forward and be the starting guy there. And man, to have him go down like this, tough, very, very tough. Yeah, I mean, it's very tough. I think he sort of saw those signs of like real optimism out of him last year, uh, especially before in September, he had like a weird neck issue that sort of knocked him out for weeks. They like, never put him on the injured list, but he just wouldn't play for weeks at a time. And that sort of sank his numbers by the end of the season. He sort of said like it was like he was starting spring training all over again by the time the postseason started. So that kind of put a damper on his numbers. But I think there was enough reason to feel optimism about what he could be offensively, what he could be at short. And yeah, I mean, it's just obviously brutal timing. It's never a good time to have a torn ACL or have that kind of injury, but it seemed like things were kind of primed for him. And especially for the Dodgers too, I think the two places where they couldn't really afford serious injury outside of obviously every, every team you could sort of say the rotation, but that would be probably shortstop in center field. And I think especially mm-hmm. shortstop, they were in a better position after the Rojas trade, but still not in a great overall position. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if they try to go and add somewhere uh, externally, especially once the season starts, once guys start getting cut from big league camp and have opt-outs. But I don't think they're necessarily going to have a full-time sort of solution there until maybe the deadline or they have someone play their way into that role. You mentioned the rotation and maybe we can pop over there for a second. Obviously they'll be without Walker Bueller for a while. It would be, it would have been so bizarre if Clayton Kershaw had ended up wearing any other uniform than a Dodgers uniform. If he ever has like a late career one season somewhere else, it's going to just completely upend my entire life. But one guy they brought in, I think with the hopes, at least on his part, that they could help him return to prior form was Noah Syndergaard. So what have you seen from him in camp so far? Has he made any adjustments to his pitch mix that you think are going to help springboard him into a bounce back? And what are they kind of hoping for from him this year? I think the biggest thing has been sort of mechanically simplifying things. He sort of described last year as basically trying to change the tires on a car that's still running. Uh, just in terms of his mechanics, trying to figure out his body that first year after Tommy John and just try to feel comfortable again. And in that sort of mix of just trying to figure it out, he felt like he his pitches just didn't really correlate. I know obviously the surface stats and the numbers so he was still an effective pitcher last year, especially uh, just as he started integrating uh, some different stuff into his mix in Philadelphia. But he kind of, at least over the winter, said like he kind of wanted to discard most of that, start over, and have a clean start with his mechanics and try to find his velocity again. That's going to be the biggest thing for him personally. At least his own personal goal was sort of getting back to 100. He said he doesn't think he can't, like he doesn't see a reason why he couldn't. I don't know if he'll get back to 100 if it's just a matter of going from 94 to like 96. Obviously, that could be a huge game changer. He still obviously is a guy who's a really smart pitcher, has multiple quality offerings, uh, and was able to be a quality starting pitcher last year 
even without the velocity. So I think the Dodgers are just kind of hopeful that whether it's getting him back to that velocity or finding a way to use like what he has left uh, sort of more effectively, I think they sort of have enough resident confidence, especially last year with what they were able to do with Tyler Anderson, Andrew Heaney, and turn them into effective starters, that he can at least sort of help as a fifth starter, someone who can sort of help bridge the gap until some of their younger starters like Ryan Pepio, Kevin Stone, Bobby Miller are more regular parts of the rotation. Yeah, it was uh, kind of concerning when I saw some of those quotes about him just junking everything that worked fairly decently for him last year. I mean, especially when he went to the Phillies and made some changes to his pitch mix and maybe the ERA wasn't that great. But, you know, mid threes FIP, I mean, that'll work, right? Especially just coming back from the surgery. And so if he's unable to let go of the Thor thing and he's just raging against the dying of his fastball if it is just losing a little and and doesn't come back like I think he still has enough stuff to compete with what he had last season even but that would maybe require a a mental adjustment or a resignation or acceptance that that's who I am now right so he's always someone who's wanted to throw harder and harder and harder and that always sort of scared me you know is that going to lead to him getting hurt but Hopefully he puts his trust in the Dodgers, right? Because this was just kind of a classic like Dodgers getting someone on what seemed to be pretty favorable terms just because of their track record of being able to improve pitchers and Syndergaard bought into that, right? And that's why he wanted to be there. So you would hope that once he does that, that he would listen to whatever the message turns out to be. Yeah, I mean, he took less money to be there. I think he sort of said from the outset he wanted to sort of allow the Dodgers to sort of do what they do. He sort of said that they turned everything into gold almost. So that's why he wanted to sign when he did. Right, Almost immediately after he signed, he got to Los Angeles, spent some time in Arizona at the spring training facility, uh, just trying to work with them on what it is that they feel that can maximize him. Because I think he looked at last year, obviously he got pretty well on a one-year deal, especially coming off of uh, Tommy John surgery, but he didn't pitch the way he wanted to. He felt like he could. So if he took a little bit less this winter just to hopefully get more dividends next year, I think that's the way he's sort of viewing this is just a way to get back to feeling like himself. And they kind of need him to because that rotation, it's good on paper, like everyone in it is good and impressive, but also less than dependable, perhaps from a workload perspective, right? When Julio Arias, who had his own serious injury issues early in his career, when he's the dependable rock for your rotation, that is maybe kind of concerning because behind him, you have Kershaw, Gonsolin, Syndergaard, and Dustin May. And how many innings can you reasonably expect? How many starts? can you project for that quartet, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit about Dustin May's usage limitations, which it sounds like he will still have, and then any other concerns and how they're planning to manage Kershaw and Gonsolin and that whole group to get as much out of them as they can. Yeah, I think the only person I could say, like, on March 3rd or whenever, like, this part of March, that I could probably say, like, I would have to bet on someone to make it 30 starts. It'd be Julio Diaz. But other than that, like, I think you're looking at guys who are probably going to miss time at certain points or be cut off in terms of workloads just because Dustin May, like you mentioned, is still coming off Tommy John surgery. And more importantly for May than innings limits is sort of getting him back to that form he was in before Tommy John surgery. Because last year you saw the stuff rebounded, obviously, but the command really hadn't mechanically. He just was not in a good place. And then when he was working through his mechanics, he messed up his back, which is what limited him some in the postseason. So 
getting him back to that sort of level that he was in before, even before the year he got injured, where he was not necessarily missing bats, but obviously still pretty effective, uh, is going to be important. Uh, they're not going to necessarily have a hard limit on him, but they're still obviously going to be mindful. Uh, they, you've seen this in years past with how they've sort of treated Julio Rios, like where you can sort of, if you can cut off an inning here and there, uh, they'll probably try to do that with Dustin May. I wouldn't be surprised if they do the same thing with Tony Gonsolin. I think you look at last year, especially how well he pitched and how much he pitched last year, a year being removed from basically shoulder issues that derailed his entire year and never really made him feel like himself. It's going to be important, especially because last year he missed that time with a forearm issue. So those are guys who they're going to be mindful of. Obviously, they know that the ceiling's really high, but they have to be really mindful of workload and stuff like that. And then with Kershaw, it's the same thing where you sort of have to keep an eye on just making sure that he's in a good place because he's been as effective on a per inning basis as he's ever been, especially last year. But it's just a matter of managing things. He's kind of said last year in June that the back might be something that just crops up once or twice a year at this point, and it's just about managing it and avoiding it. And he says he's in a good spot with that, but it's just a matter of you're always in a good spot with it until you're not. So they're going to keep an eye on that. And then they have, like I mentioned before, sort of like that trio of young starters in Pepio, Miller, and Stone, who they feel really high about. They also have a couple of deaf guys like Michael Grove and Andre Jackson, who have had varying levels of success, but have had some good exposure to the big leagues and are at least guys who you can sort of structure starts around where you feel pretty good about it. Yeah, I was going to ask about that trio of young guys, you know, assuming that there is, you know, some time missed in the rotation due to injury, sort of how you see the Dodgers prepping them out in terms of when they might fill in and and sort of how they think about them, those three internally. Yeah, I think I think Pepe was probably the most big league ready in terms of like he's already gotten his feet wet in the big leagues. He Obviously, the surface numbers were pretty okay last year, although he did walk a lot of guys. Yeah. Uh, last year, he was sort of dealing with, at the beginning of spring, he was trying to incorporate a sweeper just because he needed a third pitch to play off his change up in his fastball. And the Dodgers had some success sort of teaching guys the pitch, and they tried teaching him the pitch. The pitch looked good, apparently. The numbers on it were really good. It moved a lot, but it wasn't an effective enough pitch. And then as he tried scrapping it, they realized that he had sort of changed his arm angle enough uh, trying to adapt to the pitch that it made his changeup ineffective. Uh, it made his fastball sort of tail out arm side and everything sort of fell apart from there. He was just not able to throw strikes the way he wanted to. And even when he was in the zone, he was still pretty effective, but it just wasn't necessarily the right kind of arsenal. I think now they sort of feel like he's in a better spot. The guy's arm slot better back to where it was. His changeup has the movement back. Uh, his fastball is able to locate for strikes. They like barely tweaks like where his thumb is when he grips his slider now, and it's more traditional now, but it's at least more competent as a third pitch than what he had before the sweeper, but obviously it didn't throw things off like the sweeper had. So they're confident he can throw strikes at a better rate now, and as long as he can do that, he's someone who they feel good, at least as like a fill-in spot starter. Bobby Miller is obviously the guy who gets all the attention just because he throws triple digits. He has all these weapons. The biggest thing for him is just sort of working on game planning, learning how to pitch in a sense, just sort of how his stuff plays off each other, how to attack certain hitters. Uh, that's the biggest thing. He said like that third, that triple A is going to really help him a lot in terms of just having to learn those certain things and learning how to use what he has. So they still sort of have to have a look at that over the course of the season, but he's someone I could see at some point mid season ready to sort of make spot starts. The guy I think that they're most excited about that might be Stone. 
uh, just because of how quickly he's risen the last couple of years. Uh, he started last year in high A and ended the season in triple A. And I think his ERA amongst all three levels is like one four eight. He like throws a ton of strikes and that he has this change up that they uh, like sort of split change up that they taught him right when he got drafted that has sort of unlocked everything else. And they feel like at the very least, he's someone who could sort of come up and be effective, whether it's as a starter, as a reliever at some point this season. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to be someone like that come October, we're talking about just being in the po- like postseason pitching staff. He was already someone who they brought up just to throw to hitters last year uh, before the NLDS, just to throw some sim games. And he got really rave reviews then, uh, just from like guys like Freddie Freeman, Dave Roberts. Like they came away like really impressed with what he had. So he's someone who I think is the dark horse of that three to really make an impact this year. It's a pretty deep bullpen, and there are some pitchers you can count on in that mix, Evan Phillips and Alex Vasilla and Gratterall and Ferguson and Almonte, et cetera. But I'm intrigued by just the rehab brigade in the bullpen, right, where you just have Hudson and Trinan and Fireisen and Nelson and Miller, and I guess you could even throw Walker Bueller in that mix maybe if he were perhaps able to return in a relief role at the end of the season. So that's a lot of guys who... Some of them are back and projected to be in the bullpen on opening day. Some of them are more eh, maybe at the end of the season, and I guess it would be gravy if they came back. But just a lot of guys who are kind of tantalizing talents who it's just hard to know whether they'll be back at all or how effective they will be. So how do you think the Dodgers bullpen, let's say, come October will look You know, if if they're in the playoffs? uh, Might it look completely different than it does today? Yeah, it seems like an annual tradition at this point. I think like last (laughs) year we were talking sort of talking about Caleb Ferguson and Tommy Canley and those same sort of aspects where they were both coming off Tommy John surgery. It'll be interesting. I think they've also like had a tendency like just trying to like throw random guys in there and they have some success. I think Shelby Miller is someone you can throw into that list too. Like not necessarily for health reasons, but just a guy that they sort of took a flyer on just based off of seven big league gamings last year with the Giants, but they really like what he has. They sort of taught him a split change as well. Hopefully like they're hoping that that can sort of unlock some more things for him as a reliever. I don't know how the relief that's for the bullpen's going to pan out by the end of the season. I think Fire Eisen's the guy that they're looking at sometime during the season being a factor. Alex Reyes is a guy who uh, they're sort of expecting at some point around midseason, possibly being their closer down the stretch if they can sort of figure things out with him and he can stay healthy. Trinan uh, says he's, he's hopeful he can come back at some point this year. I'm not sure how likely that is. I don't think Walker Buehler's likely going to pitch this year either, but... They're guys that they're sort of banking on, and they're hoping that they can layer enough of these injuries where like, it's, some stuff is going to always come up. So they're hopeful that they can sort of patchwork this bullpen into something that, that the last couple of years they've had some success uh, just having a group that by August or September starts to feel set, pretty settled and then it can be pretty effective in October. Can you talk a little bit about the Justin Turner for J.D. Martinez exchange? I know it wasn't a direct exchange, but it was uh, we'll let one guy go and bring in the other guy. From a clubhouse kind of leadership team personality perspective, what does the loss of Turner represent? And can JDM just sort of slot in there and occupy that same sort of veteran professional hitter type role? Or is someone else going to have to step up there? I think it definitely helps that he has that track record. And yeah, Justin Turner, like he was the longest tenured position player on the roster, longest tenured player not named Clinton Kershaw on the roster. Uh, he had been around basically for 
almost all of like this run of 10 straight years making the postseason. So his voice meant a lot. It meant a lot in the community, it meant a lot in the clubhouse. And he was sort of always the guy who was like starting the group chats. He was the guy taking, uh, starting the team dinners, doing all those sort of things. So that's certainly something to pick up. I think the Dodgers, obviously it's been a talking point uh, this spring, just considering that you're losing a guy like Justin Turner. They do have some guys who, at least in their own way, can sort of fill in. Clinton Kershaw's guy who sort of always said, like, it's difficult as a pitcher to do it because you're not the guy playing out there every single day, but he's someone who has spoken up when he's needed to speak. Uh, Mookie Betts has uh, not necessarily been a guy who loves to be like the raw raw type guy but he has been in the past i know everyone sort of knows that 2020 speech he gave in spring training sort of about the dodgers focus level and they sort of use that as sort of a point a for where that championship team sort of came from freddie freeman obviously had that sort of role in atlanta for years and has felt a lot more comfortable and then obviously jd martinez plays a role in that as well i think they have enough guys who could sort of fill in to that sort of role i could throw jason hayward in that group as well uh, just in terms of veteran guys who've been around that can sort of patchwork the leadership aspect of it. Offensively, I think they sort of looked at J.D. Martinez as a guy who had some back issues last year that might have sapped some of his power. He's, there's probably more in that bat than he showed in the second half of the season. They sent him to driveline pretty early on in the offseason just to work on his bat speed, but he's a guy who obviously they have a lot of faith in his quality visit at-bats. He's a guy who Justin Turner probably would have been a guy who DH'd at least half the time anyway, so if they're, they were fine having Martinez be the everyday DH and sort of having pretty fair swap, uh, especially with Martinez willing to take less money to come to LA. So we talked about that sort of trio of high-level pitching prospects. You've already mentioned James Outman on the, on the position player side, but among their other sort of high-level position player prospects, are there any who you expect we will see at the big league level for an extended stretch this year? I think the guy who is mo- like the surest bet to like make an impact on the big league club is Miguel Vargas, uh, just because he's probably going to be on the opening day roster as the second baseman. He already got a little bit of a taste last year, was on the postseason roster. I know he didn't get a plate appearance, uh, but he was around and he he has been around a lot of the veteran guys basically all winter. He, like, he spent a lot of time with Bookie Betts, hit with JD Martinez, played like worked on infield drills with Miguel Rojas. Like he has been as open eyes and ears as basically anyone in that of that group and he's the guy who they they love his bat and i think that's the biggest thing that they think he'll figure it out at second base i think he's athletic enough they sort of tracked him i think third or fourth in the organization in sprint speed uh which was not something that was originally part of his profile especially when he first got signed uh so they're kind of hopeful that he can sort of figure things out defensively and that the offense will, will sort of come and sort of carry things and solidify things. So I think he's the guy who's the surest bet uh, to sort of make an impact of that position player group. James Outman will get a chance at some point in the big leagues this year. And I'm curious to see what Michael Bush does because, like, yeah, offensively he's in a good spot. It's just I don't know if there's a place to play him, uh, yeah. uh, especially with on this roster, especially with J.D. Martinez on the roster because the easy solution would be just to throw him at DH and let him hit. But yeah. With Martinez occupying that, it makes it difficult. Freddie Freeman plays every day at first base. And then second base, like he's kind of blocked a little bit by uh, Miguel Vargas and by Chris Taylor and by just sort of his own defensive struggles in a sense. So I think that's to be the biggest thing that for him is just if there's a place for him, if there's an opportunity for him to sort of run for a job, I think that's the biggest thing is just having the opportunity opening up. Yeah, he makes me think of another question. You know, obviously there was this 
huge focus with the club in the offseason and trying to dip below the luxury tax threshold, which they didn't manage to be able to do with some of their other moves. When you look at a guy like Bush, it makes me wonder, you know, given that they have already exceeded the first luxury tax threshold, if some of their you know, sort of piece together positions on this roster don't end up working the way they want to. Do you think that they will have an appetite to bring on money at the deadline if they need to in order to sort of push through and make the postseason? Yeah, I think they sort of uh, went into the offseason with the hope of staying under the luxury tax just to reset things, to be able to really pursue next winter, someone like a sort of big target. Everyone obviously will attach them to Shohei Otani, who they've loved since he was in high school, but just to be able to be able to wade into that market a little bit more than they were this past winter. I mean, they still can do that, even though they went over. Like, there's nothing stopping them. The Dodgers, but uh, that was sort of their hope. Uh, that sort of went away with Major League Baseball's decision on Trevor Bauer. The salary that they had to take on for that uh, sort of rendered any hope of staying underneath sort of impossible. So they're they're going to be over uh, that luxury tax threshold. They're not going to trade off the big league roster to make that happen. And I think with that, they're going to be willing to make moves to add. Obviously, they'll probably be pretty selective with that. But I think at the deadline, if they have an opportunity to add big, uh, if they have an opportunity to add, like I mentioned before, at shortstop, sort of like a Willie Adamas type, they're going to be willing to do that, I think. I think uh, whether it be rotation, shortstops, center field, I think there are positions that at the deadline, they can be pretty active. And even though they're always in a position to add in theory, except for the years when they're so good, they just don't need to add. But between that, between contending perennially for so long and then the costs that come with that when it comes to replenishing your farm system. I mean, the last time the Dodgers had a first round draft pick higher than 15th was 2006. They took Clayton Kershaw (laughs) that year. Good pick. But it's hard to be good every year and not draft high every year and still have a strong farm system. And it seems like most places that have published farm system rankings so far have ranked them somewhere between first and third, certainly top five with somewhere between six and nine prospects in the top 100. How are they still doing this given that Everyone knows that they've had a knack for this for player development, and typically when a team excels at something, their people are poached and people copy them, and yet here they are still in contention, still with a great crop of prospects on the way. Yeah, I think even just like since uh, Andrew Friedman took over, like they've had multiple farm directors, and one of them is Gabe Kapler, who's managing the Giants now. The other one, Brandon Gomes, is now their GM, and Will Rimes is their third one. Like they've had multiple player development guys, they've had... Uh, like scouting turnover I think they just have a good idea of what they do well what fits what type of people fit what they do well and I think they have, have a lot of confidence in their ability to sort of making players better at what they already do I think every team kind of sort of says that like they say that as aspirationally like oh right, we don't have like one cookie cutter way of developing guys but they sort of kind of have done a good job especially on the pitching side of like finding these sort of talents and maximizing the most of them and some of these guys that we've mentioned like they haven't been first round picks like Dustin May and Tony Gonson weren't first round picks Gavin Stone and Ryan Pepio weren't first round picks they weren't even high a pick like day one picks or day two picks like they were guys who were drafted in the middle rounds they've had a lot of success doing that I think even like a guy like River Ryan who they traded Matt Beatty uh, who was a guy who was not going to make the roster was probably going to get DFA'd who had already been DFA'd anyways they got Matt River Ryan, who was a guy in low level, like low levels of minors, was a hitter first, and they traded for him. They converted him to pitching, and 
all of a sudden he's a guy who's rising up draft boards just because they had a, a prospect board, just because they have a good knack for what they can do well with guys and what sort of they can do to help sort of emphasize in certain guys. So I don't know what their secret sauce is, but I feel like they've done a good job of knowing what they knowing who they are, self scouting, uh, scouting elsewhere, and knowing how they can sort of make players better. We usually end these segments by asking what would constitute a successful season for this team. It's the Dodgers, so I don't know that there's anything other than the obvious. Uh, They want to go deep into the playoffs and win a World Series and ideally win a division. If there are lesser individual goals that you want to shout out for certain players or aspects of the farm system or anything, then that would be great. But I wonder, just because this is the first time in quite a while that the Dodgers have looked like underdogs, at least in the division, whether there's been any kind of chip on their shoulder, you know, we're the big dogs until proven otherwise. Teams will always look for ways that, you know, projections or the media or whoever are uh, supposedly disrespecting them. And when you have the track record of the Dodgers and you're coming off winning as many games as they did last year and the Padres still haven't proven that they can unseat them. Are they still sort of walking around with the same swagger and the same expectation and even using it as motivation, the fact that there are doubters now? Well, I think if you had Andrew Freeman do the annual win total prediction, I think he like kind of already answered the question saying that you weren't going to win 111 games again. So like they're not, <laughs> I think they're kind of well aware of that. I don't think they mind it. Like I don't think they mind being in that position. Uh, obviously, their preference is to win the division by 20 games like they did last year, but I think there was a part of them in 2021 that was kind of invigorated by being in a postseason hunt like with the giants obviously they knew they were gonna make the playoffs but just that division hunt invigorated them at points and brought the best out of them obviously i think towards the end it sort of tired them out and exhausted them i think by the cs in 2021 they were kind of drained but i think in the middle of that stretch kind of brought out the best of them i think they went like 44 and 13 to end that 2021 regular season obviously that was a really good team but they sort of thrived in being in a division race. I think that sort of is a tone to set for this season. I think they could sort of, there's probably a lot of parallels to that. Obviously, I don't know if the Padres and Dodgers are going to sort of each win 106 plus games this year, but like they're going to be obviously in a really contended, contentious race. And I think they know the benefits of winning the division, especially now with the wild card round being instituted. And I think, I think they're going to really thrive in this. I, I honestly think that they're going to be benefit from it. I think the biggest thing that's going to be in their way is just, if these injuries and death starts to pile up because there's enough residue res, like resident talent on this roster to win the division i think that should be the expectation i think a successful season is obviously beyond that it's getting back to the world series again and i think that's always going to be the thing going to be the goal as long as sort of this group is in place and this is more of a season preview than a full year preview, so we probably don't have to ask you where Shohei Otani is going to go, because if you knew that, I imagine you would have <laughs> reported it by now. But do you think <laughs> that being reunited with former Angels beat writer Fabian Ardaya will be a big factor in his decision? Uh, I don't think so. I think huh. me asking him about his walk-up songs and about certain <laughs> random things that he d- did in his early years, I don't think that's necessarily, necessarily a positive or a negative. I think it's just one of those things. But uh, yeah. I do know the Dodgers have been obsessed with Shohei Otani since he was in high school, and that's going back to a previous regime, obviously. But there's been a lot of interest in him for a long time, so I wouldn't be surprised if they're heavily in that mix. So you're saying it'll be like a tiebreaker, basically? Like. <laughs> 
two teams offer him the same amount of money. I don't think he'll be part of Andrew Freeman's pitch. No. <laughs> well, maybe it's in the back of his mind. I'm sure he'd be happy to see you again. <laughs> Can't believe you left him. I mean, if I were covering Shohei Otani, I don't know that I could move to, to cover another team, even a more successful team. But I'm, I'm not sure even the only that person well. on the Dodgers beat who did that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe maybe he wants to see Jack Harris again or, yes. or someone else, right? So, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's an unsung factor in the Shohei Otani sweepstakes, the former Angels beat writers who cover the Dodgers now and the familiarity that Shohei Otani has with them could be the secret advantage that no one is giving the Dodgers credit for. <laughs> all right. You can read Fabian on the Dodgers all season long unless he uh, decamps for some other team somewhere else. Who knows? But the Dodgers he is at for now and for the foreseeable future and also on Twitter at Fabian Ardaya. Always a pleasure to read you and to talk to you. Thanks, Fabian. Yeah, thanks for having me. And with that, we are officially halfway through the team preview series. 15 teams down, 15 to go. After a quick break, we'll push past the halfway point by bringing on Fabian's colleague from The Athletic, Sahadev Sharma, to discuss the Chicago Cubs. Well, we are joined now by the only one of our team preview guests who once hosted some Effectively Wild team preview segments himself. That was back before the Cubs ended their World Series drought, which seems like even longer ago, given how they have gone about their business lately. But maybe that is beginning to change. Let's find out by talking to Sahadev Sharma, who covers the Cubs (laughs) for The Athletic. Sahadev, welcome back. Oh man, I hope I hope that it's starting to change because I really would like to write about actual baseball games again because it's hard to write about baseball games when the team you're covering is is out of contention by May or you know early May as it, the case was last year. So right, and when that happens, there are fewer people who want to go see that team play, which leads to my first question. According to Noah Frank's Cubs essay in the BP Annual, the Cubs per game attendance last season was their lowest since 1998. Eight. They were still fifth in the National League and ninth in the majors because the Cubs are going to draw decently no matter what they do. But it was their worst showing in a while. And it's not much of a mystery why, given the team's recent results and departures. So how fed up were fans entering this winter? And did the Cubs do enough with Swanson and Tyone and Bellinger and Mancini, etc., to win back any hearts and minds and ticket purchases? Yeah, I mean, they were pretty fed up, and and understandably so, right? You, you Typical fans aren't going to really want to dive into the process of it all and, and contracts and arbitration and, oh, we're heading towards a cliff with all these players. But the, the heart and soul of the group that they watched win a World Series was all traded away in 2021. That that has to be difficult for any fan. They don't want to hear about how good Pete Crow Armstrong can be or Kevin Alcantara could be. Not at the time of those trades, certainly yeah. not. Maybe later on this preview segment. Sure, we'll sure. But they, you know, that that was hard and there was very little. I think the lockout led to kind of a, a frenetic pace of signing players 
uh, for every team. And the Cubs, outside of adding Seiya Suzuki, who could be a great player if, if he's on the field and healthy, it's hard to get a lot of juice for that. Stroman was right before the lockout. And then it was a bunch of just not great players, right? Bad, poor decisions or players that didn't pan out like Jonathan VR and Andrelton Simmons and stuff like that. I, I don't know how fans are supposed to be excited for that. So last year was hard on them. And as I was saying, they were out of it by May. Like they, they went on like, I want to say it was, I can't remember the exact number now, but I want to say it was like a three and 15 stretch at one point in April. And it just was like, yeah, this team can't, come back from that they don't have the talent to do that and I think if you talk to people in the front office and the coaching staff they'd admit that last year was wasn't about like oh everything went wrong sure they had a lot of injuries especially to the rotation early on but there was a talent deficit that they were working with and I think that's the big thing that you look at this offseason Patrick and I wrote about it a lot setting up a floor for this team and just making sure that this team even if they're hit with a couple injuries, even if things don't go perfectly, this won't be just an outright disaster come May or June, right? You want to have a team that's kind of hanging in there. So are, are fans excited after this offseason? I think they won back some fans. I think if they didn't get Dansby Swanson, if they struck out on the shortstops, Oh my, I don't know what that situation would have been. Like the fans were already upset as guys were coming off the board and still Swanson wasn't signed. There was just angst and and you go by Twitter and your mentions or the comments on your stories. Not the best barometer of all fans, but but still <laughs> you can you can get a decent pulse on things and and they were freaking out. And I think it ended up being all right. You know, Swanson, there's there's a plan in place. Go with the defense. Hope the offense comes together. Defense and pitching should work. We can talk about the pitching more. But I think they're higher internally on the pitching and what they've done to kind of maximize pitchers over the years than maybe externally people, how people view the Cubs and and how projection systems may view this pitching staff. Well, we definitely will talk about the pitching, but I think we have to start with Swanson. And I'm curious, you know, there are a couple of different ways that I want us to think about this. The first is for you to take us through what the process was for them signing him. Was he their guy amongst those big four from the get-go? Were they interested in any of the others? And then as they were thinking through the evaluation of him, he obviously had a, a terrific 2020. It is something of an outlier compared to his other seasons, which weren't bad, but weren't, you know, six and a half wins good either. So how did they settle on him and sort of what are their expectations for where he's going to land between, you know, his great 2020 and some of his other seasons? Yeah, my understanding of how everything played out was he was pretty high up on their list. They really valued the idea that he's going to be at shortstop for likely they hope the duration of that contract I don't think you can say that about the rest of the shortstops that signed I I wouldn't say that about Xander Bogart certainly Correa could move off short and then I know Turner you know I think it's split as how people kind of feel about his defensive value I think Bogart's they they, they never really got very deep there I don't think they talked to him very much uh, I think there was talk with Correa there was talk with Turner and Turner I think they quickly realized 
realized that market was just never going to be where they were going to go. And and the Phillies kind of <laughs> set the market there. And, and that was that just wasn't going to happen. Jed Hoyer isn't at the point with uh, building this team where he feels like he can uh, give those types of years and that type of money and, and feel good about it. Yeah, I think. I, I don't know. I don't know if I buy the the Tom Ricketts line of he was far and away their number one guy, hmm. but I do believe that they really value the fact that he's going to provide defensive value at a premium position, and they needed to move Nico Horner to second base to really create this elite infield, middle infield defense. Offensively, I do believe they think he can be that guy again that he was last year and maybe a little bit more. I uh, I want to dig into the, the idea of them trying to find more value out of him offensively, and I haven't had a chance to really dig into that. Maybe that's a project for later in the spring or, or into the season, but I do believe they want strikeouts or kind of a focus of how they can – get that a little bit more under control. I it was I wouldn't call it out of control with him, but I think it was higher than he wants it to be and just kind of make him even tap into a little bit more offensively. So I, I guess the answer there is yes, they believe that was real and, and there maybe is a little bit more. I'm not saying like a ton more offensively, but just a little bit more offensively and and just the idea of creating this middle infield defense, I think really attracted Jed to the situation. Plus, you know, we love a baseball player who actually moves for his wife's work as opposed yes. to the other way around. <laughs> yes. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> right. And the up-the-middle defense, uh, aside from catcher, perhaps, which we will also talk about, but you mentioned Swanson and Horner, and then, of course, you have Cody Bellinger, and center field defense was an area of great need for the Cubs, too, because uh, they were dead last, I think, in center field defensive runs saved and outs above average. So Cody Bellinger certainly helps in that respect. The question, of course, is how much he will help on the offensive side. So there were a lot of teams that were interested in Cody Bellinger once it became clear that he was looking for a one-year deal. So why did the Cubs win the Cody Bellinger one-year pillow contract sweepstakes, if we can call it that? Did they have a plan to help him get back to what he once was that attracted him? Was it just a, a money thing? Do you know any details about what he's working on or what the outlook is for a bounce back this year? Yeah. So why it was a fit was, you know, playing time guaranteed. He's going to be the center fielder until there's absolutely, you know, unless he becomes unplayable in this season because their best prospect is Pete Crow Armstrong, a center fielder, the center fielder of the future. It'd be very surprising if he's maybe not very surprising. It'd be surprising if he's ready this season, maybe for like a September call up like uh, Corbin Carroll was uh, at the end of last year type type situation. So he's got they're, they're just going to let him ride there. Uh, they know you talked about how bad the defense was that year. That's part of creating that floor. If, if they if they can just get elite defense or plus defense from him in center field, that that's an upgrade. They can he can be the same player he was offensively last year and it's an upgrade from the production they got from the position there's also the fact that both the hitting coaches the primary hitting coaches Johnny Washington and Dustin Kelly they're both from uh spent time in the Dodgers organization not a ton Kelly didn't spend a ton of time with Bellinger I think Washington maybe overlapped for a year or two in the minors with Bellinger uh, but they have previous history. They have a relationship. They kind of speak the same language, so to say. I think from my understanding of everything, I think 
Cody Bellinger kind of felt like <laughs> he was like almost like a, you know like this patient with a rare disease and and they had to come in and all these people come in and like take a look at this you know what's going on here how do we solve this problem how do we cure him and i think that's how the last like 2 plus years were for him he just there was a lot of information thrown at him now i don't want to criticize the dodgers organization because far be it for me to say that the cubs have things figured out and the dodgers don't because <laughs> the dodgers are i think a, an organization that the cubs are chasing i think they'd admit that there are things that they'd love to do that the dodgers do so well but i think part of it is kind of getting out of that environment and it has nothing to do with the the dodgers organization just the fact that that's where he was and there was a lot there were such the expectations are just so high that maybe getting out of it and just kind of resetting mentally he he's also a few years removed now from that shoulder injury the the leg injury from 2021 you know more time has passed he's more confident that those are in the past that that there's no lingering effects and then finally just like yeah are there changes that they're making sure but they're not there's not a lot of things going on it's very subtle and it's a lot of a lot of talk about use your athleticism trust your body but yes are there specific things it's like the hand placement don't move the hands as much kind of keep it up and tilt the bat a little bit back don't have it as extreme of that bat waggle that he had make sure you're engaging your back hip properly these are some of the things I've heard on background when talking to people around the team. And I think if you look at his swing, you can see very slight differences, especially with the hands. But I think the key is getting, making sure that back foot is is strong and stable and the back hip is being engaged properly. And then just how the hands move and, and not being as much noise there. Those are the, those are the mechanical things, but I think there's a lot of things going on here as far as mentally and just feeling comfortable and not being overwhelmed with the information. They're not trying to give him a ton of info. They probably have a ton of information and there's probably more that they feel like they could tweak, but why mess with it? If, if he, he doesn't need to be the, was it 2019 that he was MVP? He doesn't yeah. need to be that version. If he's 2018, that would be amazing. I, I think that they'd be <laughs> thrilled with that. And I think Cody would be too, because I mean, if if he's still a plus defender in center field, he'll hit free agency, I believe at 28 then, coming off like a 120-ish way to run straight a plus or something like that. If it's that or higher, he's going to make himself a lot of money. Everybody will be happy with that situation. If we can stay in the outfield for a second and shift to the corners and just ask, like, first, what is the outlook at the moment for Seiya Suzuki? When does the team expect him to be able to start, you know, resuming baseball activities and then, you know, hitting hitting the field? And what is the plan in the short term and potentially the long term if he is either for when he's delayed and then if he's delayed further beyond opening day? Yeah, I think he wants to get back for opening day. I think Jed did speak to the media yesterday, so that would be Thursday, and basically said, you know, he didn't rule it out, but he he said something about, you know, it's in in high jeopardy or something like that (laughs) uh, opening day for for Seiya Suzuki. So I'd be surprised if he's there for opening day. They've dealt with, you know, every team has dealt with these types of injuries. You don't want to rush back from an oblique Nico Horner specifically similar situation in my mind he came to camp in 2021 uh, noticeably stronger and bulkier suffered a few muscle injuries that year one was an oblique tried to come back at at around three and a half weeks at a minor league rehab stint 
immediately re-injured himself, was out another three and a half weeks, a total of seven weeks. I think, I don't want to guarantee anything, but I think the worst case scenario without setbacks is probably missing the first month. And I I think that's fine. I I think, you know, if that's what ends up happening, you want him to be 100%. You don't want him. You you can talk a lot about what are the rosiest scenarios for the Cubs offense. And those rosiest scenarios include, say, Suzuki turning into, you know, a superstar level offensive player, which I think he's got some of the traits that you look for. Obviously, he needs to be healthy and stay on the field, but he... I think he he could miss you know anywhere from two to four weeks of the regular season and and you know it'd be great if it was like five six games uh, I think the Cubs would be thrilled with that but they're not going to rush things there's no reason for them to do that the options I think Trey Mancini may get a shot at right field Mike Tuckman has a really good chance of making this team now Patrick Wisdom will get some shot at right field which then opens up playing time at third base so there's there's a lot of moving parts here and with Mancini that may open time up at DH so who who else makes the team fans could get excited about a prospect like Matt Mervis maybe making the team because of this I'd be surprised if that happens I wouldn't count on Brennan Davis being ready to make the opening day roster although he he's certainly part of the future someone they believe if he can stay healthy He's a big part of their future. And then, you know, something opening up at third base. If Wisdom's playing more right field, suddenly, oh, is Nick Madrigal at third base not as big of a, you know, look at this weird experiment the Cubs are running and and is this a reality situation? Because I've talked to people that are really excited about him offensively because they freely admit now he shouldn't have been on the opening day roster. He should have stayed back in Arizona, continued to rehab, not push so hard, and he just wasn't 100%. Maybe there were like two weeks in the season where he was healthy and looked like the guy that was drafted fourth by the White Sox years ago. I want to believe in Nick Madrigal, so I'm <laughs> holding out hope. I would enjoy it if he were good. I would want to ask about two potential infield weak spots. So with Wilson Contreras last season, the Cubs ranked sixth in catcher war. Without him, they project to finish 28th. So why let him leave, particularly to go to your biggest rival? That's one spot. Another one is first base, which, unlike catcher, was a weak spot last year, too, and still looks like one this year, at least according to the projections. Fifth lowest war in 2022, projected for fourth lowest in 2023. Eric Hosmer is here. (laughs) (laughs) There's a correlation there. So tell us about what happened and what didn't happen at catcher and first base this winter. Yeah, so catcher, I think this is a nuanced topic that essentially the Cubs want to go in a different direction with how they handle that position. I think Jan Gomes is a perfect example of what they're looking for there. Go look at how the Astros handle the position. Uh, The Yankees post Gary Sanchez, just most of the good teams, the, the way they handle catcher is offense is secondary, right? If you have a guy in a rookie contract like Will Smith in LA, then sure, go for it. You know, ride that guy. That guy is, if he does all the little things as well as being a a great offensive player, then sure, the Cubs would love that. That's not the situation they have. It's just, they don't have that prospect ready yet. Miguel Amaya, maybe someday will be that guy, maybe at some point this year. But Jan Gomes, talk to pitchers about Jan Gomes and you just get over the top praise about how much 
work he puts in in between the games, whether it's, you know, meetings with the coaches and catchers and pitchers or showing up for bullpens and breaking down all the little things and giving little advice, being able to adjust on the fly in game because he sees certain things and it's like, you know what, the game plan we had is great, but I think if we tweak it slightly here, he's he gets a lot of praise for constantly being like on top of things during a game he's in the coach's ears he's constantly thinking and he's a you know I've had multiple people say he's going to be a manager and I think they look at Tucker Barnhart similarly I think offensively Jan Gomes probably has more upside than Tucker I, I don't know how real this is but I was looking at Jan Gomes's offense and it seems to always go down when he goes to a new team, when he's trying to get to know new pitchers. And he's admitted to me that he's like, all my only focus when I come to a new team is trying to understand these pitchers and get the best out of them. So I'm curious to see if, if the offense is a little better this year for him, because it was in the second half last year. I don't know if, if randomness, if it's just completely random and, and I'm falling for it or what, but I'm curious to see if he can be close to a league average bat. I, I, I'd be surprised if Tucker is but yeah that that's what they want from their catchers and the reality is they didn't feel that Wilson was giving them that he's a great offensive player and to be a consistently great offensive player you need to spend time working on that a lot of time working on that and that can take away from the other responsibilities that come with catching and and sometimes that works fine sometimes it doesn't when you have a really veteran pitching staff great he could catch the 2016 Cubs pitching staff because there was nobody young on that staff mm-hmm. the youngest guy I think was Kyle Hendricks and Hendricks is you know pretty advanced mind and and they had a really good game planning system in place at that point so there, there are all these little things might miss those back picks though this year <laughs> yeah I think the, I'm, I'm very curious to see how it plays out I mm-hmm. look I'm this isn't me and endorsing their plan this is me trying to convey what they're thinking about the position I think it's going to be fascinating the Cardinals who I think it'd be hard to disagree that they're a much more successful organization an organization that has a lot of things figured out and and it's not they're not in like some transition with with how they run things they chose Wilson Contreras as a successor to a guy that had been, you know, the guy behind the plate for them for two decades. So suddenly to hear all these things, negative things about the way Contreras is viewed with the, you know, the the nuanced aspects of being catcher. And then you go and then he goes to their rival. How is this going to play out? How is this going to work? I could I could see him having a great season and just crushing the Cubs when he does fans are that's going to drive fans nuts because I've never seen a fan base an opposing fan base like Wilson Contreras. Wilson Contreras knows what he's doing out there. He knows he's taking off the opposition and their fans and he loves it. And guess what? The fans of the team that he's on love it too. So I, I'm just, it's going to be so interesting to watch. It's going to, I think it's a, it's going to be a fun storyline fans some fans are already sick of it they just they're just like ah man I just want to move on I want to see what the Cubs can do but it's going to be hard to move on when the Cardinals come to town or when the Cubs go to St. Louis because he's going to be the center of attention uh, during those moments and and he does a really good job of of playing playing it up and and being the villain to the opposing fan base Right. Regrettably, I must steer you back to Eric Hosmer and the first oh, base right, situation. Right. <laughs> so I, I think that Hosmer's, uh, this is part of creating that floor, right? You mentioned how bad the 
the offense first base was and I think first base second base and center field were just abysmal for the Cubs last year uh, is Hosmer a great player no uh, but the Cubs offense there was like uh, Alfonso Rivas and Frank Schwindel it just wasn't very good in any aspect I'm not sure if Eric Hosmer is very good anymore uh, I think he could be okay offensively if it, <laughs> if he has like a hot stretch that kind of carries the overall numbers I think he's also going to have a short leash you know I, I think they'll give him a month or two and if it's just not working he's not gonna I, I, I'd be surprised if he lasts the whole year if he's not a good productive player they have Matt Mervis who they like who should be ready soon I mean he's I think he's 25 already you want to get him up to the big league soon Trey Mancini will play some first base. I think Trey Mancini could be pretty decent. So, yeah, if you're just focused on Eric Hosmer, then it's then it's an issue. I, I certainly agree. I think that if you're rotating between Hosmer, Mancini, eventually Matt Mervis, Patrick Wisdom gets a little time there. There's probably a name or two that, that I'm forgetting or that will emerge over the course of time that should help. I, I think this is an area where I think fans were upset about the Eric Hosmer signing. I'll say that. <laughs> I don't think it's a, a huge concern. If he's not producing, he's just not going to be playing and he probably won't be with the team. I don't think they want to look at it that way because that's a really negative way to look at it. And the coaching staff certainly doesn't do that. But that the front office knows what they have here. And, and they're just trying to cr- bring in some veterans that, that have experienced winning and, and can kind of help this transition. This isn't the all-in year, just yet, right? They're they're not as as much as they're an improved team. This is this is still kind of a transition. I think you'd prefer for that transition to be like the early part of the season where they they figure out what they have, and then it's like okay, we can move on from Eric Hosmer. Matt Mervis is crushed in AAA again, and let's just bring him up, and he can be our first baseman. If that's how it ends up working out, I think that that would be a pretty good situation for Mervis to kind of not have the pressure to be the opening day first baseman. And then come in, hopefully, with a team that's, you know, around 500 and within shouting distance of a wildcard spot, because that's that's what they want to be. Right. That That's I think that's the realistic expectation. So let's talk about pitching. Another subject fans have had reason to be upset about. The Cubs struggled with pitcher development during the years when they were winning with homegrown hitters, and then they created a quote-unquote pitch lab to try to rectify that. (laughs) I think you first profiled the pitch lab four years ago now, and here are the Cubs' pitcher war ranks among teams since then. Since 2019, 23rd. Since 2020, 26th. Since 2021, 28th. And last year, 26th. Not so hot. So how close are the Cubs to translating whatever work they're doing in there into results, especially considering that almost every team probably has some sort of pitching lab-like capabilities at this point? Oh, yeah. The pitch lab. I I love that. The concept (laughs) of this because... uh, so many people take it as like, well, they just go in the pitch lab and they're fixed and they're great. And this this magic happens in the pitch lab. And obviously, we all know that's not really how it works. It's much more complex and you have to have good coaches and, and understand the data. All that's happening in, in the pitch lab is you're gathering more information and data. And then you hope to be able to make tweaks based off that. Use that information properly. I believe they have some pretty good people in place now. There were major changes made made before the 2020 season so you're right I did write about the pitch lab in the spring of 2019 after that season 
they completely overhauled player development and uh, Craig Breslow uh, kind of oversaw that brought in a lot of people a name I keep hearing is uh, Casey Jacobson is, is someone that that pitchers love working with in the minor league system there's a there's a couple other coaches that I, I wish I could remember all their names but they've completely overhauled that department they look at it very differently than they did before. Those numbers you you brought up are eye-opening because, yeah, the, their pitching has been bad. Uh, <laughs> second half, the pitching was really good. I think they've found some things. I think they've they acquired Hayden Wisniewski in a trade for Scott Efros. So let me let me rewind a little bit. I think where they've had success over the years, over the last few years, is especially with bullpen arms. So they're figuring things out about how to maximize some veterans and get the best out of them. And it's not just it's not just them trumpeting these things, right? There's there's guys like Ryan Tapera, Andrew Chafin. They they probably the best years or the best half year or best however many months you want to say of Craig Kimbrell's last four years were kind of with with the Cubs in 2021. They really do know how to get the best out of these guys. Chris Martin came to the Cubs last year specifically with that in mind. He. He trusted that they had some new school ideas that could help him kind of recapture what he felt he'd lost in 2021. So, and, and, they did. They helped him. They traded him to the Dodgers, and he got a big two-year deal. I want to say two or three-year deal, right, with the Red Sox this past winter. And and I think Jed has said that openly. They, they kind of take pride in the fact that they were able to take these guys for not much money and get them back to looking like they once were. So they've established that with the bullpen arms. I think they they're starting to make progress with the pitching. Part of what I – when I talked about that scramble before the – was that last season? Oh, I guess it was the, the, the 2021 season. They put out some pretty rough starting pitchers. Uh, the off- that, that winter of si- uh, signing guys on the cheap didn't, didn't really work out. 2022, I felt like Drew Smiley had a really strong second half, uh, part of the reason they brought him back. Adrian Sampson, out of nowhere was a really quality starting pitcher for about 105 innings, uh, like a 310 ERA, I think. The peripherals won't back that up, and you'll, everyone's going to say he can't repeat that. And I, I can see him repeating it because talking to him, he, he made very slight tweaks to like all his pitches and understands how they work now and, and all these little things that I feel like, okay, that's – that's him being given good information about how can I improve these pitches? Okay, I'm not going to be this elite pitcher that misses bats, but I can make slight improvements to make me this, you know, up and down guy to a guy that can stick as a fifth starter. You know, nothing brilliant, nothing like we created an ace, but I think that's that's a nice little feather in their cap. I think acquiring guys now finally acquiring guys that are quality and and to get a little bit more out of them uh, Hayden Wisniewski I think Hayden Wisniewski may be a little bit underrated I I think Fangraphs has him rated in the top 100 so yeah, yeah that's what I thought I so I, right. I think Eric is obviously high on him too I I like him and I think he understands how to pitch I think the cerebral part of it is, is really intriguing to me because he he seems to really understand things on a level that few pitchers, at least they're able to convey that. They're, they're not able to say it to a reporter as well as Hayden Wisniewski can. So, yes, I think that a lot of progress has been made. I think when I was talking to an executive the other day at spring training, how we were watching Ben Brown, who they acquired for David Robertson from the Phillies last summer, 
throw a live BP, and he was touching like 97, 98, and throwing some pretty nasty breaking balls, and suddenly he has this changeup. And I was like, how come like a year, you know, I was like, two years ago, you know, I'd talked to you about the pitching, and it was just like, uh, Braylon Marquez or bust. And now it's like, I don't even know who the best pitching prospect is because there's, you know, I could name like six guys and make an argument. You know what? I think that guy's the most talented. Now I think it's great. They've created this depth. They, they have a real system in place with pitching development. The next step is, okay, bring guys up to the big leagues. Are these guys quality? Now, I always point to the Astros as they don't, they don't have a rotation. They have a homegrown rotation, and it's not a bunch of top 100 prospects. So do the Cubs have a bunch of top 100 prospects uh, as far as pitchers go? Not really. Not not very many. Like I said, Hayden Wisniewski gets some love. I think Jordan Wicks has gotten a little bit of love. But outside of that, you're not going to get a, a ton of these guys on top 100 prospects. But they could create some depth here and have some surprises. They just really have seem to have a, a ton of names like Porter Hodge, Cole Franklin, Luis Devers. Like These guys are getting results. Daniel Palencia. I can just like I wasn't able to do that two or three years ago, I, I would name like two guys and I said, maybe Oscar De La Cruz is okay, but he, the numbers are terrible. And I don't know. So it was, it's a very different situation. Now, can these guys come up and be productive? Can they be a three or four or five? I'm not sure if they have aces there. I do think they've figured some things out and they're in, they're headed in the right direction. I think they'd agree they want to see a little bit more, one more step forward this year, and then they'll feel really good because it's kind of from, you know, low A all the way up. They have intriguing arms. Now let's see them produce. I think Caleb Killian is a name that completely is going overlooked because he was pitching through a knee injury last year that he didn't talk about until this spring. And his numbers went from this like control guy that was didn't walk anyone to suddenly walking everyone for the entire summer and he's a guy that they acquired for Chris Bryant so there's just all these pitchers now suddenly where where you can have a guy like Caleb Killian have such a disastrous year in the minors and in the big in his big league debut and still say that was a step forward for the organization as a whole with pitching you couldn't have that that couldn't that didn't happen the entire even the good years, 15, 16, 17, you know, at the peak of their the major league team, you just didn't have any of these success stories, anything positive coming out about the pitchers. So I think it, it's a huge step forward. Now I, I want to, before I fully buy in and say, yep, they, they got it right, I want to see the results really take hold at the major league level. Wisniewski was 88th on our top 100 as a 50 future value prospect. I buy all of that for the future. But in the now, (laughs) (laughs) this is a rotation that will be without Kyle Hendricks for a little while uh, at the very least. And maybe we can talk about if the sort of fiptifying qualities there have have worn off a little bit. And then, you know, it is a a rotation that is still uh, still has Stroman at the top. We mentioned that Tyon came on as a free agent. What are their expectations for this big league group in 2023? Because... I look at it and I'm like, eh, eh, yeah. eh, you know, like I kind of, eh. <laughs> so maybe let's start with Hendricks. When is he expected back and what are their expectations of him? And then what are their sort of broader expectations of this group for this year? 
If I could piggyback on that, I'm curious about Hendricks too, because last player left from the 2016 yeah, team and got yeah. shut down early last year with the shoulder issues. And then you wrote last November that he was about to begin a driveline style program to try to add velocity, which for Kyle Hendricks might be throwing 88, <laughs> right? So <Yeah>. how's that going? <laughs> so it, they didn't do that like full on driveline. That was part of the plan, like part of a potential plan. He didn't start throwing until December 1st. I think they decided that the best course of action was shortening up the arm stroke. He'd gotten really long and had like this arm stab and, and was going really far back with his arm and that and is essentially was putting more strain on the shoulder than needed. Everything was all of his stuff. And, and you know, with a guy like that, who uh, when he's going right is sitting 88, that loss of 2 mph or whatever it was is just disastrous right and and then when you're not feeling right and he right. wasn't feeling right according to him pretty much all of last year i think yeah. i think he made like 10 15 starts but i don't remember the exact number he didn't look good right he wasn't able to he says the way he describes it is he basically couldn't finish his pitches so that means not only was was the stuff not good not only were the pitches not moving like they should he wasn't commanding them like he wants to and and if he's not pristine command that's it's just not going to work. It's just, it's going to be ugly like it was. And that's for such a, for a guy that, you know, I covered his peak. It's, it's hard to watch. And you're like, am I watching the end of this guy's career? He, he seems pretty optimistic. He's not going to be back for opening day, not close. And he, I, I think the big, the best thing the Cubs can say about that is they're not panicked about that. That's not something that they feel they need to rush. They feel they've created enough depth that, you know, Kyle Hendricks is is almost a luxury in a sense. A great Kyle Hendricks, 2016 version of Kyle Hendricks, or even uh, the two months you got in 2020, he's he's more than luxury, right? That that's great. a that's a great pitcher that you'd love to have at the front of your rotation. But you know, I think right now he's taking it slowly. He's not rushing things. He feels good. He finally doesn't feel that pain. He's thrown a couple bullpens by now. I think he threw one a week ago. So Friday before I left spring training and he he was beaming after that. Really happy with the way things looked. Jan Gomes caught him and it was just like 10 fastballs, right? But Gomes was very encouraged with how it looked and he's pr- slowly progressing from there. I think we'll get like actual him facing hitters like a live BP in a couple weeks you know in games late in March and into April as far as whether it's I'm not sure if they're they have a goal of him getting in spring training games maybe extended spring training triple a wherever they want to rehab him you know I think no setbacks being ready to come back by sometime in May is is a good timeline there but I think it's just like the overall picture of the rotation that they're not panicking and saying we need to get Kyle Hendricks here to have any chance to compete says a lot about where they feel their pitching has gotten because you couldn't have said that a couple of years ago. It would have been an utter disaster, even if he wasn't expected to be the pitcher that he's been at his best. Uh, you just needed him out there, and I think that's part of why he kind of pushed through last year. Uh, Drew Smiley was hurt. Wade Miley was hurt. Marcus Stroman got covid Kyle Hendricks is like, I can't complain about my shoulder. I can pitch through this. I have to pitch through this. Otherwise, we're we're dead. And and they were anyways because he wasn't good and the, the <laughs> rotation was a mess. So what do I think of this rotation? What do they think of this rotation? 
I think Marcus Stroman, you know, outside of last year, I think you know what you're going to get. Last year yeah. was weird. He it was COVID, pretty bad bout of COVID, according to him. Came back and, you know, as he was coming back, he hurt his shoulder because I don't think he was feeling great physically and and that and kind of compensated for it and then missed more time with that. He didn't get right until late. And then I think his overall numbers are actually pretty good for how bad he was early on. So, you know, I, I trust him. I trust him to put up his Lee, his his career average numbers, which is, you know, solid mid. If you want to call him a two, I, I wouldn't. You know, I'd probably say he's a, a three, but that's fine. It's a good pitcher. I think Jameson Tyon's similar. I think they think they can get a little bit more out of Tyon than he's kind of showed. And, and that's not a knock on what the Yankees are doing as much as he's far enough removed from uh, surgery. And he had so much of a focus on getting his arm action right post Tommy John, which would have been the 2021 season. He basically told me he felt like that was an audition of this new arm stroke that he has. He said like he, you know, that he didn't feel comfortable with that until like, you know, halfway through the year. So he couldn't work on other things and he's working on a new pitch, the, you know, the sweeper that every pitcher seems to be working on. Yeah. Who, who learns a sweeper after leaving the Yankees? Yes. That was my, like candy. That was the first question I asked. I was like, so I know you're working on this, but why didn't you (laughs) learn it with the Yankees? That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, And he agreed. He's like, you know, I just didn't, like I said, he was working on the arm action and then the lockout, all these things. All these events occurred that kept him from really diving into it, and he wanted to have a full offseason, and he did. It was something that he brought up to the Cubs, and the Cubs were like, perfect, because we look at you as someone that could use that. I'm curious to see how that plays out. He's obviously ultra-talented. Can he be a little bit better than he was last year? Uh, Can he be like a really consistent innings-eating, middle-of-the-rotation guy? Yeah, maybe. Justin Steele is the guy probably with the highest ceiling currently in the rotation. I think he... He was really impressive. Once he got things figured out, took him like a month, and then he started kind of hit his stride, kind of figured out where he wanted to locate his pitches, how to pitch. He's probably got the most swing and miss stuff currently in the rotation. So I'm curious to see what he can do at a full season. He went from talking to him, I feel like he's a guy with stuff that is starting to understand how to be a pitcher and not overthink every situation. A big moment for him was last year. I can't remember who it was against, but he, he it was a tough situation. Fifth inning, uh, the Cubs are up just a couple runs, men on base. And, he, you know, there's a mound visit with the, the catcher comes out there. And as the catcher goes back, Steele's kind of like staring at Ross waiting for him to be pulled almost like Ross is, and Ross is like gives him a stare back like get on the mound and pitch and I think that was something that Steele needed like st- and and Ross kind of it was Ross's way of saying like stop looking over here and just do your job type thing don't overthink this don't think I'm coming out there to get you like fight to stay in there and he got out of that jam kept his team in the game the Cubs ended up winning and I think that was a good confidence boost for a young guy who's learning how to pitch I'm curious to see if he can be that kind of guy that emerges. And then there's after that is, oh, Drew Smiley, who who is really good, who loves pitching here, who everyone that I've named outside of Steele, they're just not going to miss bats. I think that's why you look at this and you say, eh. And then Adrian Sampson is likely the fifth starter with maybe Wisniewski getting that if he's just so impressive, which he has been, uh, you know, in the very short time of spring training. And I don't want to take too much away from that. But I totally understand a reaction of why my to be excited about this rotation 
like I'm I'm a big swing and miss guy, but I think their focus right now is what they believe is their strength there is we have strike throwers. We're not going to give free passes. That like you know, Tyon's awesome at that. Stroman's awesome at that. Samson's pretty good. These guys don't walk guys. Smiley doesn't walk a ton of guys. So I think they they're excited about that. They they give up a lot of soft contact. Another reason why upgrading the defense was so big. They're they're gonna have a, they should have a really good defense, especially if say once Saya comes back, you'll have average to above average in the outfield, up the middle defense elite. And then, you know, we'll see how third base kind of shakes out. But I, I really like the defense and relying on soft contact guys. But I, I totally understand the questions and, and the concern. I, I'm a little curious to see how it plays out. I want to see how Steele steps up. And, and I hope they can find someone that can miss more bats over the course of time. I think that guy's probably Wisniewski. And then we, we get back to talking about the system and, and what they're producing. And if they can produce more guys, more pitchers as a part of this rotation because Stroman has an opt-out, you know, Hendricks has a, has options. I think the team options, uh, you can't rely on all these guys really going forward. So the player development is going to be huge for the rotation. We'll, we'll see if they can fill that out beyond 2023. Yeah, I think the projections have them at 22nd for starting pitchers and 23rd for relievers. So they pretty much have to beat those if they want to make the wild they card totally, happen. I, so, I know but, they believe... <laughs> Yeah, Sorry. I'm, I'm sure I, they I know do. they believe yeah. that they they are they have something figured out where they outperform that type of stuff. They're they're not mm-hmm. a they're they believe they they outperform FIP essentially, and I think mm-hmm. they do have a couple pitchers that do do that pretty regularly. I mean Kyle Hendricks consistently did right, so I think they have. I think they believe that they have some guys that will outperform FIP. I'm like I said, I'm a strikeout guy. I'll believe it when I see it, but you know, I'm not down on the rotation, but I'm not going to come out here and argue with anyone that says like meh to the rotation. <laughs> right. So, one more big picture question. You mentioned this isn't the all-in year, but when might the all-in year be and what might that look like? I know Tom Ricketts spoke to reporters a couple of weeks ago about payroll questions. I think the Cubs are currently middle of the pack in payroll, maybe top 10 for luxury tax purposes. So, what's the spending outlook? Yeah, I think I would say, and I think this is kind of the vision that they've had, 24 and 25 are the years where they want to go into the season and say, we are World Series contenders. I do wonder how much this offseason of spending and then the extensions kind of that, that took place with Devers and Machado kind of changed that, how much that hurts them. But then then we get back to player development and and that, like I mentioned before, Pete Armstrong, Kevin Alcantara, huge year for him, I think, for the way the Cubs view this thing. Because if he becomes a superstar prospect, which he certainly has that capability, suddenly you're talking about, okay, there's that big bat that they're lacking. Suzuki-type situation, right? If Suzuki's healthy and has five awesome months, suddenly you're like, oh, okay, well, we have this guy that's 28 that, that's an all-star quality bat. We have this kid coming up in Kevin Alcantara. We have our center fielder of the future in Pete Crow Armstrong. And we have all this pitching depth that we can use both at the major league level and also maybe trade some guys to, to get players. And we have money to spend. The money, I think, my question to Ricketts was, do you believe this will be a top five? Do you believe you can keep this team in top five payroll year after year? And his response was basically, I'm not guaranteeing top five payroll. 
every year basically says he wants to reset the the luxury tax every few years there's benefit to that he said there was draft benefit i don't think there is anymore with the new cba i think that's there's only financial benefit i think there's you know i, I need to double check all that and i did in the piece i wrote but they don't lose draft status because they spend 250 million dollars so they should be fine they could be fine there they're just not going to they're just not going to be that team that year after year after year i think they're, they're going to be hovering around 233 this year and then they'll you know as that goes up that'll be the point where they, they hover around do they go over yes they will go over occasionally but they're, they're going to go back down occasionally it would be very disappointing if they go as far down as they have in recent years i think they need to be top 10 consistently I don't know. I, I don't know if they will be just top 10 consistently. That'd be, I think that'd be ideal. Ideal actually would be top five, right? They should be top five. They're, they're top five market. They're top five. They have everything they need to be a top five team payroll wise. So yes, this is a, this isn't a full on transition year, but it's kind of the bridge to like, let's try and put a team out there that can compete and then in 24-25 is when we really start. And then there's no more down years because we've built this system. We have the right player development in place. We have the right amateur scouting in place. That's their vision. Uh, they they didn't get that done the first time around. They believe they've corrected some things, especially in the player development department. So when any down year in payroll, would in their eyes, should be should be countered by the fact that we have all this young talent coming up. So yeah, we may have gone down to 200 million in payroll or whatever it may be. If it's lower than that, who knows? But we have, you know, XYZ players that are all coming up from the system that are just going to rake or, or, you know, mow down the opposition, whatever it may be. I think that's their vision for beyond 24 and 25. But if they're not, if they're not a powerhouse by 25, then it just, it just didn't go right. It, they, they didn't execute their plan because I think that is they believe that they should be the team when we when we're doing this in 2025. If I'm not talking about this is a world team that should win the World Series or should compete for the World Series and they're up there with team X, Y and Z, then then it didn't go according to plan. Right. Well, we usually end these by asking what would constitute a successful season for the team, but I think we've covered it. As you noted, <laughs> you, you hope for a wild card, but if you don't get a wild card, then you hope for progress in these other areas, prospects coming up, strides on the pitching side, some clarity about ramping up and about getting that championship core in place. So now we will just wait and see whether it happens, and <laughs> you can find out whether it happens by reading Sahadov's work at The Athletic and finding him on Twitter at his name, Sahadav Sharma. Always a pleasure, always informative. Thank you very much, Sahadav. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Meg, I don't know if you know this, but we are now more than halfway through the team previews. Wow. 16 out of 30. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We're getting there. They fly by, man. So let's wrap up with the past blast, which comes from 1976 and from our frequent past blaster, David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And David writes, this is a, a more well-known story maybe than most of our past blasts, mm. but too fun to skip. And I agree. The White Sox work on their short game. During spring training in 1976, baseball's constant innovator, and I might add promoter, 
Bill Veck announced that his Chicago White Sox would be making a fashion statement in the coming year for select games in the 1976 season. The Southsiders would ditch their traditional uniform pants in favor of shorts. As reported in the March 23, 1976 issue of the Orlando Sentinel, the change was made for comfort and novelty, as well as hope for a new image that would stir up the imagination and interest of the fans. <laughs> Makes the fans sound sort of horny almost. Yeah, it sure does. You can't blame them. As far as team reaction, according to White Sox public relations manager Dan Unferth, most of the team likes them, except for the heavier guys. I guess if you're portly, you don't want short shorts to make it more obvious. Ah. Unferth did have faith in the long-term viability and popularity of the shorts, suggesting we may even start a new trend. On those hot days of July and August in Dallas, the other teams may be wishing they had shorts on too. The first appearance of the shorts would not come until August 8th, a game in which the White Sox defeated the Royals 5-2. Reportedly, Bill Veck himself modeled the uniform for sports writers prior to the game. The White Sox wore their shorts two more times in 1976, going 2-1 overall before retiring the short-lived fashion experiment. Well done, David. That was a a Meg or Ben quality play on words (laughs) there, which is not necessarily a compliment. So a couple misconceptions, I think, first is the idea that they just wore these things that whole season, right? They actually only wore them in three games in that season. But also... I was under the impression that one of the reasons why they discontinued this practice was that it was tough to slide yeah. in shorts, uh, as you would imagine that yeah. it would be, right? But that seems to be fake news to some extent here. I'm reading a, a column by Paul Lucas of UniWatch at ESPN, and he wrote about this. He said, many fans mistakenly think the socks couldn't slide in the shorts for fear of cutting up their knees, but that wasn't the case. The players had little pads tucked under the tops of their socks just below the kneecap, which apparently provided enough protection to allow for sliding. I don't know. I mean, there's still some exposed skin there, but I do see what it means, and I'll, I'll link to the pictures. Lucas continued, you might not think those little pads offered much protection, but the numbers don't lie. According to the archive box scores, the socks stole eight bases without being caught in their three shorts-clad games, so the pads must have been doing the job. Either that or the opposing catchers were too busy laughing to throw anyone out. So that's interesting. And they won two of the three games that they played. And yet this did not catch on and the White Sox did not continue doing it. There were other teams that tried this minor league teams primarily in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So it was not solely a a White Sox idea. But again, even though it seems to have gone just fine for the White Sox, like it wasn't like, oh, we've made a horrible mistake and this was terrible, but it just never continued anyway. So I don't know, maybe we should uh, consider bringing back the shorts. I don't see a a strong reason against it, at least based on this, uh, as David called it, short-lived experiment. I still think it would be bad to slide in shorts. You would think. You would think. I just think it would be bad to slide in shorts. I support, you know, (laughs) we support the hornification to some extent of baseball. Mm -hmm. Like within bounds, you know, we don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. But, um, you know, we also think that there's like room between the length of the pant leg as it is and what it could be, shall we say. (laughs) But I still think it would suck to, to slide in in shorts. I think it would be, you know, it's like you don't want to. Have you ever fallen down at the beach? 
<laughs> you know, it's like that. It's like, and, and beaches tend to be softer, you know, is less sharp. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you walk around on an infield and you're like, this would hurt. Yeah. I just can't, I've, I would find all sliding to be uncomfortable. And like when infielders like leap to catch and then they land on their chest. I'm mm-hmm. amazed they can do anything at all after that. Like I'd need to rest for a while. <laughs> the, the wind out of your sails, you'd think. So, right. you know, maybe it could be like a an exhibition thing where you know that, like, you know what, you know what the perfect compromise is. What put the celebrity softball game people in shorts? I think mm. a lot of them wear shorts now, so it would mm-hmm. be, you know, it would be in keeping with that. It's like they're just running around having fun out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, Bill Vec tried to set these concerns to rest by saying, hell, I've got a worse looking knee than any of my players. It's solid wood because he had an artificial leg. He had a war injury. (laughs) So he modeled the shorts and and said they fit him well, always the showman. But, you know, he pointed out uh, players should not worry about their vanity, but instead their comfort. If it's 95 degrees out, an athlete should be glad to put on short pants and forget his bony knees. (laughs) But But as you're saying, it might not be comfortable to slide but also on a hot day on a hot day it would be nice but like he didn't like have performance fabric as a thing now you know like guys Mm -hmm. that's true too they're wearing pants but they're like you know it's not like the george costanza seinfeld uniform so yeah i I guess you know there was one time where they they wore the shorts in the first game of a doubleheader but not the second i think Mm. and they changed because it got cooler in the later game so they just they didn't need the shorts, right? And and uh, they, there was some sort of uh, sexist stuff that was uh, oh. said about this, as one might imagine. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. was, again, 1976. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it would but, be more surprising if that hadn't happened. Right. Yeah. The second baseman on the Sox, Jack Brohammer, Brohammer, wonderful name, said, Rough. I'm not going to wear short pants unless they let me wear a halter top too. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, Goose Gossage requested some notice so he could shave his legs remove all the hair before the the shorts were on there but i think even they came around even uh brohammer maybe because he was the only guy to homer while wearing the shorts he changed his tune he said i like them they're very comfortable and everybody seems to like them so even he was won over by this and kansas city first baseman john mayberry he said you guys are the sweetest team we've ever seen again some some taunting and mayberry shouted to ralph gar if you get over to first base i'm gonna give you a big kiss etc etc but Mm. this was just sort of like you know the initial resistance but then when you lose to that team you're making fun of well then you can't really make fun of them anymore and manager (laughs) paul richard said they felt great i think they'd be great in warm weather they're all right from what i can gather the only reason that they stopped using them initially attendance went up for the shorts games because people wanted to see what that would look like people are horny yeah yeah just wanted to see those players showing a little leg but then that attendance boost did not continue Mm. seemingly and also the media was paying less attention to the novelty of shorts it it just it wore off pretty quickly so Vec was not getting the same promotional benefit that he was getting initially and I guess figured well it's it's not worth it unless we're selling more tickets and getting more publicity but again there doesn't seem to have been an obvious downside so I'm just saying if anyone wants to bring it back there is no clear evidence that that would be a terrible idea 
Yeah, I I maybe don't have a lot of confidence in the discourse around it being all that different from in the 70s. So there's that piece of it. I do love the very sweet idea, Ben, that having been bested in the shorts, no one ever made fun of the shorts ever again because (laughs) it's not my experience of how that kind of stuff works but i think that uh we should try it and see if we have advanced as a society and then we can Mm -hmm. feel sad when we find out that we haven't (laughs) yes all right well even more injury news after we finish recording andrew painter the phillies phenom has some elbow tenderness he's gonna go get checked out hope he's okay one of the best stories of the spring so far hope it doesn't turn into one of the worst stories Got a few follow-ups to our answer to an email last time about whether we'll see triple-digit uniform numbers in MLB. Listener Joseph points out that triple-digit numbers exist in cricket. Listener Andrew points out that NPB and CPBL, the Japanese and Taiwanese majors, have long used three-digit uniform numbers, apparently all the way up to 999 in at least one case in Taiwan. Listener Michael says there's already some precedent for uniformed MLB personnel using numbers above 99, 11 of the minor league umpires. Empires invited to participate in big league spring training in 2022 were assigned triple-digit numbers. And listener Mike notes, I remembered a story that Bill Lee, the spaceman, wanted to wear 337, Lee upside down, but he wasn't allowed to, so he wore 37 instead. I can't find a source, so maybe it's apocryphal. He has worn it in his post-MLB career, and I think that's true. Or at least if it was a tall tale, it's one that Bill Lee was telling while he was still an active pitcher. So yeah, we just need a triple-digit uniform pioneer in MLB. I think the day is coming. This could be the day that you support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have gone to that site and signed up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access us do some perks. Christian Medrano, Vicky Ho, Tony, Maxwell Elkus, and LP. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons. We're at 990-something members, just so close to going from triple digits to quadruple digits. It's a great community, so check it out. You can also get access to monthly bonus episodes and ad-free fangrass memberships and other merch and goodies. So again, patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email at podcast at fangrass.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. Next week, if all goes as planned, we'll have the Blue Jays, Royals, Rays, and Pirates previews, plus some WBC discussion and perhaps a fun guest or two. For now, we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. A triple dog dare, a triple dog dare, a triple dog dare, a triple dog dare. A triple dog dare, a triple dog dare, a triple dog dare.